April 24th, 2020. It is a freaking hot one out here in Southern California. I uh, hope everyone's doing okay, staying safe, staying smart. I mean, we where I am uh, over here in Long Beach, and I mean, we're like right across the street from the beach, so we're in an area where it definitely doesn't get that hot. It's in the 90s right now, so whew. I know all of you that are not in uh, Southern California that have like the bad weather are probably like going to punch me in the face right now, but uh, anyways... If you hear the fans blowing in the background, it's just because it's a it's a it's a hot one, and we have a lot to talk about on this episode of That's What She Said podcast. We're gonna start with a recap of the uh, round one of the NFL draft that was last evening. We're gonna talk a little bit about the Red Sox cheating scandal. Then we'll get you in some horse racing, Gulfstream Park for Saturday, a couple plays, Oakland for Saturday, a couple plays, and then a couple plays for Oakland Sunday, and then we'll go to. WrestleMania 6 with a WrestleMania recap back in 1990. Darren Zocali, Andrew Champagne join, and we talk about Hulk Hogan versus The Ultimate Warrior, the last pay-per-view that Jesse the Body Ventura was on commentary. So that's a really fun show, and uh, you can throw it on the WWE Network, kind of kick back and watch along with us as we go back in time. Let's get right on into the uh, NFL Draft. So number one overall pick was Cincinnati Bengals, and there, this was no surprise. We knew they were going to go with Joey uh, Joey Burrow here from LSU, who was just so amazing last year, national championship, Heisman Trophy winner, went through for over 5,600 yards, 60 touchdowns, just six interceptions. I mean, he was he had one of the, if not the greatest single season that any college player has had, um, you know, and, and he, not not only just racking up the numbers and the stats, but he won. So they get their uh, they get their quarterback and hopefully their franchise guy. At the number two pick, it was the Washington Redskins. They went with uh, Chase Young, and many folks actually thought that Chase Young was the best player in the draft. He was the most talented player in the draft. But you need a quarterback, and you have a guy like Joe Burrow there. You go and get him. This was a good pick for Washington. They grabbed you know the best available player there. They have a lot of holes to fill. This is going to really help on their defense. The Detroit Lions were the number three pick. There was nothing too crazy about what they did, uh, picking Jeff Okuda from Ohio State. This was um, a lot of where a lot of uh, people were projecting that that he was going to go early on. They seemed like they liked him quite a bit. They needed some help there to kind of replace uh, Slay. And it looks like he's the type of player who can come in right away and start and help them out on the uh, on the defense defensive side of the ball. Andrew Thomas was the first of those big uh, offensive linemen that were taken. There were there was like a tier of four that were the top tier offensive linemen, and Andrew Thomas was the first to go. He went to the New York Giants, and that's what's great about these these top four um, linemen that went. They're like ready to rock right now. They, you can you can stick them in and play. You, once you get back to Austin Jackson, he's more of a, a little bit of a project. But the, these first few, um, they're big boys and they are ready to go and they can help your offensive line right now. And then with the fifth pick, the Dolphins went with Tua, and this is a good pick for them. I mean, they had a lot of other capital in this draft, a couple other first round picks. If Tua doesn't you know work out for you. It's worth the the risk is worth it. The invest uh, the the reward is worth the risk here with Tua, who I mean obviously his issues aren't talent right. It's injury. It's durability. It's can he stay healthy? When you have a player like that, I think you have to give them a shot. When you know that their ability 
is there. And he would have been, he stays healthy, he's probably the number one pick, even if they don't win it all, but if they make the playoff, it was just the question marks with him, and he didn't even drop that far, down to five. Dolphins get Tua. And then the Chargers went with Justin Herbert. This was one that I, you know, as someone who is a USC fan who watches a lot of Pac-12 football, who's seen Justin Herbert now, he never really impressed me. I think he's one of those um, that you look at and he looks at and he checks a lot of the boxes of what a quarterback should be, but when you really dive into his film and a lot of uh, what he does, I just don't know if he's the guy. And I would I don't know if I would have taken him in number six overall if I'm the Chargers. So the Chargers go with Justin Herbert. The Panthers go with Derek Brown, which was kind of funny because then afterwards they said that um, they felt that you know Simmons was their best player available, but that that Brown was more of a fit, or that Simmons would be better on a team with more veterans. It was kind of a weird comment, and I have no problem with Derek Brown. He's super dominant. Just seemed like if you're the Panthers. You aren't just a DT away from being super competitive So I'm just starting to stack best player available We saw some teams play it very smart when they were able to do that later on um, in this first round And then the Cardinals, they were able to get Simmons The very, very highly regarded, um, really super versatile defender I mean, he just lined up all over the place and he's the type of player who can come in right now and just wherever you need, you just plug him in and play. So that was the uh, the number eight pick for the Arizona Cardinals. At number nine, the Jacksonville Jags took C.J. Henderson. This is a good, smart pick for them. They needed help at the uh, cornerback position. They lost, you know, their stud cornerbacks um, in in the last like year, year and a half or so. He was one of the top rated players uh, at the position, and very nice fit for them. 10th pick, uh, Cleveland Browns. They've you know, really strengthened their offensive line now. They get Jedrick Wills, offensive tackle. He played on the right side at Alabama, and um, he's going to probably have to move over to the left side, but it doesn't seem like it should be an issue for this super, super talented big man. Uh, at the 11th pick, another um, offensive tackle goes to the Jets, and that's Mekhi Becton. So they get a little bit of... Uh, Protection there We're seeing right The teams that needed the protection uh, The Giants Young quarterback Young running back They get the another offensive lineman there With Andrew Thomas We see it with the Browns You know with Baker there And um, you know a lot of offensive weapons Now they're able to add a You know add in addition to the offensive lineman That they add in free agency So this could be a strength for them this year And then the Jets They needed offensive line help They get it here to help Sam Darnold One of the more strange picks it's not like crazy but most people when they were talking about the wide receivers in this draft which is a very deep wide receiver draft they had Jerry Judy and they had CeeDee Lamb as kind of the top two with Henry Ruggs behind them as as more of the speedster and the Raiders at number 12 at pick 12 they actually pick Henry Ruggs and he is I mean, total playmaker type, but is he enough of a position possession type guy? Um, he may need, he may not be like a right away player. He he may be a little bit more of a, a need a little bit of time to be able to figure out the NFL versus some of the other top tier wide receivers who look like they could be ready to uh, to contribute right now. Tampa Bay moves up to thirteen to get an offensive lineman here, and uh, so they get Tristan Wirfs to help 
protect Tom Brady. They flip-flop with the 49ers, so the 49ers are down at 14. They get uh, Javon Kinlaw um, defensive tackle, so they immediately are able to replace DeForest Buckner right there. Um, I like what the 49ers did quite a bit. They were just smart. They were able to address their needs um, in in this draft. It was a, a good draft for San Francisco. At pick 15, perhaps the best wide receiver in the draft, you get Jerry Judy, who's a really good route runner here, and he is ready to rock and roll right now. He could be an instant contributor and like a fantasy option next year. They needed some help there in Denver. They got a big-time wide receiver in Jerry Judy. Atlanta, they filled a need. Um, they needed help with it at the cornerback spot, and they were able to get A.J. Terrell in here. Um, there might have been better options for them, but uh, again, they're, they're filling a need here. I didn't love this, this pick, but I didn't necessarily hate it uh, as we move to 17. And this is when Dallas, you know, Dallas is looking and going, we don't really need a wide receiver, but damn, C.D. Lamb is still on the board right now. And, you know, to... He was my favorite wide receiver in this draft. I think he's an absolute stud. And now you you add him to, you know, Cooper and Gallup. That's a good trio. I think they're just looking and going, you know what, this is the best player available right now. Let's just take him and we'll worry about some needs down the line. Miami took a little bit of a reach with the, the, the Trojan offensive tackle, Austin Jackson. He's a good project. He's super young. He's still only 20 years old. And he has, you know, you, you look at him and, and you can project what he could be. So it, they're they're young. You know, they're rebuilding. It's not a bad spot for them. They don't necessarily need uh, guys that are going to con- contribute immediately right away. They want maybe some players that can grow along with uh, their new franchise quarterback, Tua. At number 19, the Raiders picked cornerback uh, Arnett, uh, Damon Arnett. And he's good. This is a good spot for him. The The Raiders filled some of their needs, but the, the thing is they went for, it looks like in some spots, particular players that they just liked a little bit better, which is fine. But if it doesn't work out, then you're going to get ridiculed for maybe uh, not taking someone who may have been projected a little bit better in that spot. We get to pick number 20 with uh, Caleb on Chasen, and uh, the Jags get the, the edge explosive speed rusher and good job of the Jags just starting to stack talent that's what they need they need a lot of help they get a couple uh nice pieces on the defensive end at 21 the Eagles get a wide receiver we saw how banged up this team was this year at some of the skill positions they desperately needed one so they get Jalen Rager here who's really quick and can help them stretch the field and he's kind of um coming off of a, a year where he didn't have a very good quarterback and so he might be a little sneaky in here. Justin Jefferson is the wide receiver that the Vikings get to fill in, basically to fill in for Stefan Diggs. This is a really good pick for, uh, for the Vikes. He goes across the middle of the field. He's really good in the red zone. He's going to be um, a major player, like a major contributor right away. At 23, the Chargers trade up, and they get the linebacker Kenny Murray, uh, Kenneth Murray. And there's nothing wrong with this pick. I just didn't really... I wasn't a fan of, of moving a whole lot in this draft because th- it's a deep draft. So now you trade up, you end up giving up uh, you know, a couple of other picks to get Kenneth Murray. I, I just didn't love it. 
if, if you're the Chargers, and it's the typical Patriots move, right, trading out. The New Orleans Saints get a nice um, a center here to help their offensive line. He was a very highly ranked top interior lineman on many boards, and he's someone who can maybe plug in right away and, and help that offensive line and start. The 49ers with pick number 25. They selected wide receiver Brandon Ayuk. He's a total playmaker, really good, like yards um, after and run after the catch type. He and and Debo Samuel should be great. You plug them along with Kittle. Um, they have some weapons there in San Francisco. I think they did a hell of a good job um, with their couple picks early in this draft. They're they're in great great shape. And then the the pick that made the the most noise was. At 26, the Green Bay Packers, they have not drafted a skill position, did Rodgers say, like a wide receiver or a running back, like in the first round in 15 years. They get Jordan Love, quarterback. Maybe they're trying to do the same thing that they did with Rodgers when they had Rodgers backing up Favre, and then he takes over after a couple years. But this seemed weird. In a draft where you could have grabbed maybe another nice wide receiver, or maybe if you wanted to get a, a running back, you could have grabbed like any running back off the board. But instead, they go with backup quarterback Jordan Love. I don't know about this one. And he didn't really impress uh, me a whole heck of a lot. So that to me, the only quarterbacks that I really liked in this draft early were Burrow, and then I thought Tua was at least worth taking the shot on. It's especially in the right circumstance if you're Miami. And then after that, like the next tier, I didn't really love. So if you still want one, then maybe wait for Fromm or Eason or someone like that. At 27, the Seattle Seahawks get one of those um, players who is just all over the field. Uh, Linebacker Jordan Brooks. He's going to rack up a ton of tackles. At 28, another linebacker goes to the Baltimore Ravens. Another really, really good one. Um, That's Patrick Queen. And then at 29, the Titans help uh, bolster their offensive line with Isaiah Wilson, offensive tackle. And then at 30, the Dolphins, they get uh, cornerback Noah Igbenogany. And uh, he's he's another one. Like I like what the Miami uh, Dolphins did here. They take some swings, right? They they had a couple drafts here, uh, a couple picks here in the first round, and. They get themselves an offensive lineman that they think is going to be really good, maybe not immediately, but a year or two down the line. They get a quarterback who, you know, might still need a little bit of time, but that's fine. They're more worried about the future, and I think they get the same thing here um, on the defensive side of the ball. Really, really good athlete, um, and he can kind of just, you know, play center field. Um, This is uh, Igbenogany. Fun name, right? At 31, Jeff Gladney. Cornerback goes to the Minnesota Vikings, so they fill in really nicely. Wide receiver and cornerback. And then at 32, we didn't see this one coming, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs, they get the running back, uh, Clyde Edwards-Alaire from LSU, who is really good out of the backfield, so he should be great for them um, catching passes out of the backfield um, for Mahomes. And they don't really have a star, right? This guy can run between the tackles too. They have a couple backs there, but he should fill in very, very nicely. So... Those are your top 32 picks. That's round one. Next week, we will do a full recap of the draft. We'll go through every team. We'll talk about um, who they added and maybe still some of their needs and what their team looks like after the draft and free agency.
Okay, we'll shift the focus over to some baseball. Okay, so Major League Baseball uh, released um, their findings for the Red Sox uh, for the, the findings into the investigation into the Red Sox cheating scandal. So we got to talk a little bit about this. I'm reading from uh, uh, a story on the Athletic. They interviewed. Uh, Major League Baseball interviewed 65 witnesses, reviewed tens of thousands of electronic communications, a 15-page report on the Red Sox, which was six pages longer than the report on the Astros, a team which it disciplined much more harshly. So, baseball MLB said that, that the Red Sox actions were much less egregious than those of the Astros. Commissioner Rob Manfred confirmed uh, on Wednesday, he also noted the superior conduct of the Red Sox front office, saying it made commendable efforts towards instilling a culture of compliance in the organization. That makes me want to vomit. Okay, so we'll get to it later on as we read through this, but this is the very same organization that in 2017 had an Apple Watch incident. And that's exactly what this article says next. Diligent as those efforts might have been, they proved insufficient, resulting in the second round of punishment for the Red Sox in three years, following September 2017 Apple Watch incident for using electronics to steal signs illegally. Like, everything you read in this, this is the problem that I have, and, and, and the, athletic calls, the Athletic calls bullshit on this too. Right when you read the the reports, and I think a lot of the people are the only people that seem to to be okay with this are the fans of the Red Sox and the fans of the Astros who are you know. And I understand what baseball's doing; they don't want this big scandal hanging over everyone. They don't want everyone to know that two of their top teams were involved in in big time cheating. Which, no matter how much cheating it is, right, they got caught cheating. So by by giving these these like slap on the wrist penalties you're basically telling the entire rest of the league it's okay to cheat and we kind of know this already cuz baseball's been been kind of that way right they turn their they turn their eye uh, their head all the time to whatever the new like cheating is like earlier on maybe it was amphetamines and then it was you know uh the steroid era and then things you know changed a little bit now to the more like the stealing signs era and it's they're just an organization that is okay with cheating. It's funny. It reminds me a lot of horse racing. It's like um, somebody does something wrong and, and they fine them five hundred dollars, and they expect those people to not continue to do the, the wrong things. It's like when there's no real punishment for your crimes, they don't even really feel like crimes. You don't even feel like you did something wrong because you're not getting punished. <laughs> so. Um, this time, Manfred strips the Red Sox of their second-round pick in the 2020 draft, and they suspended the team's video replay system operator, J.T. Watkins, through uh, the 2020 postseason, prohibiting him from returning to the same position in 21. Really? That's, like, uh, huh? A second-round pick? And the video replay operator suspended? The commissioner also suspended Cora through the 2020 postseason, but only for his conduct on the Astros bench in, um, as the coach in 2017, not as the Red Sox manager in 2018 when the team won 108 games and the World Series. So the mastermind of the Astros cheating in 2017 came over to the Red Sox, who then are the best team in baseball, a team that everything goes right for, and he is not doing any cheating whatsoever. None. Nothing. Zilch, Zippo. Huh? I'm I'm really supposed to believe that? 
I'm supposed to believe that the only guy that was doing anything and the only one that knew was JT Watkins? A video replay operator? He's the only one telling like one or two people? And even if, let's say, for if that was the case, that's still cheating. But I'm supposed to believe that no, they didn't know what was going on? People who have track records for doing this exact thing and setting up huge systems like this right before? I mean, really? <laughs> so... Um, it says the investigation, and I'm reading a lot through this uh, this article uh, from the Athletic. Uh, the investigation of the Red Sox was challenging for the league in several respects. Witnesses offered conflicting accounts. The team video replay room infractions happen off the field, away from cameras, making them difficult to prove. Um, to Manfred, the differences between the violations of the Red Sox and Astros warranted not only a different punishment but also a different perspective. A perspective some might interpret as inconsistent with his previous rulings. Thank you. It's like, I don't know why he's he's trying to protect these teams because it's on him. And it's just making him look worse and worse. The question they ask. Why were, comp- were comparable employees in the Astros and the Red Sox organizations handled differently? Well, it says Watkins was in a similar role to the Astros, um, other other play to some of the Astros staffers, um, and it says the Astros had two sign stealing schemes. The most blatant one set up in 2017. The Red Sox are not in, known to have engaged in anything comparable to that system. Which sure, I agree. We we haven't heard that. But both before and after the trash can method, including during the 2018 season, the Astros communicated signs to players in their dugout via the video replay room. That system is analogous to what the Red Sox were punished for on Wednesday. If the Astros committed two crimes, the Red Sox committed one, the lesser of Houston's pair. The Red Sox loss of a draft pick Seemed from Manfred's desire to hold the team accountable I mean this is just Nothing Right How are they not getting disciplined more than that There's just going to be cheating I mean now I'm looking at any team Why wouldn't you cheat You're not losing anything You're not getting stripped You're not getting multiple draft picks Huge fines It's like big stuff It's just One or two One or two people goes down on the cross right one or two people make, make like sacrifices themselves and goes out on their shield, <laughs> and that's it. Why wouldn't the managers and other staffers be aware of what was going on? Manfred said, "Quote: I did not find that the then manager Alex Cora, the Red Sox coaching staff, and the Red Sox front office, or most of the players of the 2018 team knew or should have known that Watkins was using in-game video to update the information he had learned from his pre-game analysis." Huh? Really? This is this is and so that's the the athletic says why wouldn't at least some in the organization have known? This is perfectly stated. What comes next? It is theoretically possible that Watkins operated so covertly that he only knew what he was doing, and further that only he knew that it was a violation, and that none of the beneficiaries of the system were aware something illegal was transpiring. Sure. There's a minute, very tiny chance. But even if that was the truth, does this team that's already been caught in 2017 
and then the coach who was already caught on a different team in 2017, do they both deserve any benefit of the doubt whatsoever? Absolutely not. So this goes on to say, if you understand clubhouse dynamics, how the video replay sign-stealing relay in fact work, information travels into the dugout then to a runner on base, it makes the theory that the players don't know somewhat implausible. Rob Manfred said he heard from players who said they were aware that decoding signs during games took place. Red Sox hitters met every night before every game with staff, or not every night, met before every game with staff to prepare for a given night. In those meetings, the group discussed how a runner on second base would signal with a body movement to tell the hitter what was coming. That is not illegal unless in-game electronics enter the equation, as was the case with Watkins. And most players are generally aware of what is going on in the dugout. These are a lot of these words aren't mine. These are from the athletic article. We all know that we're getting you know, we're getting lied to and we're supposed to believe it and it's like people treat us as fans stupid. They do. Why was Red Sox management not held responsible? In his report on the Astros illegal sign stealing, Manfred made reference to his handling of the Apple Watch incident, saying, I made the decision in September 2017 that I would hold a club's general manager and field manager accountable for misconduct of this kind. He did not apply that standard in this case. Instead, he determined that the former president of baseball operations, Dave Dombrowski, and his staff properly conveyed, uh, conveyed the rules to Cora and his coaches. The commissioner did not find that Cora was aware of misconduct, but Cora did not effectively communicate to Red Sox players the sign-stealing rules that were in place for the 2018 season, but he got no additional discipline. Really? Does any of this make sense? After effectively concluding that Watkins was a rogue employee, the league felt it apparently could not justify holding Cora accountable. Why should the Red Sox be credited for attempting to instill a culture of compliance when the team's players did not understand the rules? Manfred first punished the Red Sox in 2017. He said he had similar uh, he had received assurances from the franchise that no similar violations would occur again. Yet in Wednesday's report, Manfred wrote that many players told my investigators that they were unaware that in-game sign decoding from the replay station had been prohibited in 2018 and 2019. If the Red Sox culture was so strong, why were their players not better educated about the rules? Boom. (laughs) This was a quote from the Red Sox president, Sam Kennedy, CEO. At the end of the day, we all could have done a better job, and we need to do a better job as we go forward. Yeah, that's nice once you've won a World Series. It's funny how that works, right? Because, like, if things don't go perfectly for you all year long, like they didn't for the Red Sox this year, they didn't make the playoffs. So it's amazing, right? It's funny. The fans of the Sox and the Astros want to say that the cheating didn't help them. Yet, it seems like the years when there were more cracked down on cheating and they weren't able to as much, they didn't win. I guess that's some weird coincidence, right? (laughs) It says, Red Sox staff and players, they're comfortable with Watkins taking all the heat. 
The positioning of Watkins as a singular fall guy, even if warranted, will be difficult for many to accept. Watkins' role was to serve players. He faced pressure to help them in any way he could. Sources say that in fighting the charges, he provided evidence that he had stopped players from peeking at his monitor on more than one occasion. What? Okay, so you stopped players from peeking at your monitor once or twice, but you've helped them 5,000 times before that. This is like... (laughs) This is like a script for like a... Like a parody. You know, this is something like you'd see on Comedy Central or like... uh, uh, (laughs) So... Watkins first joined the organization in 2020. He returned in 2015 after serving two years in the military. He is well-liked, hardly known as a lone wolf, and traveling staffers are usually treated like family, like players themselves. Then it says, how much responsibility should MLB bear for an environment that was conducive to cheating? Teams are obligated to follow the rules, but the body is showing those rules. The commissioner's office is obligated to ensure their clarity and enforcement. I'm upset with Boston and with Houston, but I'm more upset with the with MLB because if they're not, like I said, if, if they're not cracking down on it, it's it's worth it. I don't want the Dodgers to go out and start cheating, but if they did, and, and I was in this situation as a fan, I wouldn't be. Saying well we were better than everyone I would just be kind of happy that they didn't take the World Series away They didn't take the ring away And that I still remember winning those games You're not going to ever take that away from me Manfred acknowledged that Watkins job responsibilities Placed him in a precarious spot In my view Watkins was placed in a difficult position By the virtue of his dual role As the person responsible for decoding signs Pre-game and is the person responsible for operating the Red Sox replay system. Watkins admitted that because he watched the game feeds during the entire game, he was able to determine the, during the game when the sign sequences he provided to players uh, to the game were wrong. Thus, he was in a difficult position of often knowing what the sequences were. I mean, this is just crap. This, yeah. I mean, I just keep shaking my head every time I read through this kind of stuff. Um, To address its lack of foresight about the potential for the combination of video replay, the challenge system, and club culture to create an environment conducive to rule-breaking, MLB can only revise its rules again, something it plans to do before play resumes. It's uh, Red Sox GM. It's no excuse for a rule violation. We're all accountable for our behavior, and we're all responsible for following the rules, whatever they are. But I think structurally, we ought to do everything we can to make sure the confusion can occur in these aspects of our game are beyond reproach. Jeez. So, yeah. The Red Sox cheated, but because it was... Only in certain situations when there was runners on And only because a few people did And only it was this one guy nobody else knew for sure That it's okay and nothing really matters So What did they say? Cheaters never prosper? I guess cheaters do prosper 
Just wanted to remind you about one of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast, Sarah Candle Company. Visit sarahcandles.com, C-E-R-A candles.com. Use the promo code G-I-N-O for 10% off of your entire purchase. These are all natural soy wax candle. They candles, they burn longer. They are better for you than the candles out there that have that traditional paraffin wax. I know the people from this company personally. I've grown up with them my whole life. They love candles. And the goal was to, to have an affordable candle that everyone can enjoy. Use that promo code G-I-N-O. My favorite is Fresh Roses. The Fresh Roses scent is awesome. If you're a horse racing fan, they got Del Mar in there. You ever want to know what Del Mar smells like, but you couldn't make it out there? Order your candle right now from Sarah Candle Company. The website C-E-R-A Candles.com Sarah Candles.com. Promo code G-I-N-O for 10% off your purchase. Okay, let's talk a little horse racing. First, let's talk some Saturday, and then we'll talk a little Sunday. Just uh, three plays for me out at Gulfstream Park on Saturday. So get your past performances out. We're uh, April the 25th. So we're going to get to race number five, and let's look at the number two, Fugitive. This is a horse that I gave out last time. Uh, He ran on uh, April the 11th, and I played him um, that day. And... You know, if you go back to his debut, he he ran really well. He was fourth. He kind of he showed some ability, and he was behind a horse who's come back and who has uh, won since. And then on April the 11th, he broke really well from the outside. He was on the lead, but then he chose to sit, which was okay, right? He's he's right off the pace. He's in second. He's just sitting off of uh, the horse who was actually put up uh, as the eventual winner that day, Colonel Liam. And. He just, he looms right up. He looks like he is loaded. He looks like he's going to blow right by. He, he he moves up on even terms without being asked. And then as soon as he's asked, he just has nothing. And he, I thought he was going to, you know, just fade and run dead last. And he ends up holding third. And, and he still ran, you know, pretty well at the mile that day. He might have just been behind a couple horses that maybe were a little bit better than him. Now he catches a field. Where, I mean, I don't really love anybody in here. The Chad Brown first-time starter is going to take a lot of money. You know, maybe you have a couple intriguing firsters towards the outside. I don't think there's anyone else in here that really scares me. The four obviously wouldn't shock with some improvement. There's just, there's no one in here that I'm terrified of. And you're going to get Fugitive, who showed us last time out that he's got pretty good speed. Now he cuts back from the mile to seven furlongs. He, he can sit, he can pass horses. And down on the inside... If he breaks well, he just could be long gone in here. If you're able to get the lead on the cutback, you're so tough to pass sometimes. And this horse has some ability. So let's use the number two, Fugitive. Maybe a horse you can key in some of your exotics. Uh, if we get over 5-2, to two, we'll play a win wager on him. I'm sure the money will come in on the 8. You're going to see Irad Ortiz Jr.'s name popping up all over the past performances. And the way a lot of the uh, the pilots have been riding at Gulfstream, don't be shocked to see him win tons and tons of races. But they're they're probably going to be uh, at short prices and a little over bet. So let's begin on Gulfstream Park Friday, uh, Saturday, twenty fifth, with the number two, Fugitive. Uh, then let's go to race number nine at Gulfstream, and this one is the Unbridled. They're going to go a mile and a sixteenth. I've chased Necker Islands a, f- uh, a few times, and you know I wouldn't really talk you off using him. He's a little better when he can show speed, and maybe from the rail he'll be a little forced. But I do think Relentless Dancer looks like he has a major advantage in here because there just isn't a ton of speed on paper, and he should get the lead in here around five to one. 
he's coming out. You know, you, you'll look and people, you, you'll probably just think, okay, he's the horse you're going to play because he's going to get the lead. But he's coming out of, you know, the the Tampa Bay Derby and the Holy Bowl. He might have just been, you know, fourth in a couple races behind Tis the Law, Ete Indian, King Guillermo, Sol Volante, Texas Swing, Toledo. Those horses are just probably more, a little more talented than him. A, a, a little more, like, you know, great at stakes ready at this point in his career. If he gets out front, able to kind of clear and slow things down, it could be super, super tough in here. And, you know, attachment rate, we'll, we'll see if he can go this far. Um, you know, this is a fun race, and that's why Relentless Dancer should have every opportunity. You know, I don't think he even necessarily, like if Necker Island goes, he can sit off a little bit, but his best case scenario in here would be, okay, let's try to send... Even if we have to go a little quicker earlier than we want And let's open up Then we can slow things down a little bit That's the four Relentless Dancer Make sure to use him in your exotics And make a win wager if you can get like 5 to 1 or so And then in race number 11 At Gulfstream Park The 7 Baracho is going to be the top selection in here I, I've just become a really good fan of this um, Pretty solid late running sprinter um, you know he he's he can go a mile, he can go a little bit longer, but he's a he's best here when he's going you know seven furlongs, kind of that elongated sprint. The concern is you know he hasn't raced since August, but you're you're gonna get that price built in in here. Twelve to one's too high. He should be about half that. He feels like a five six to one shot um, with horses who you know have some questions, like the two Soledado. Is he classy enough to to go with a group like this, and does he want to go? You know, seven. He's super talented, and he's in really nice form right now. Um, you know, you have a horse like Majestic Denhill, who's um, faced tougher. This is like a really, really interesting race. You can make cases for many. The three, we'll see if he can transfer some form over to the dirt. Um, Spinoff, who was in the uh, the Derby and the Belmont in 2019, and who you know is another one who's coming off of a long layoff. He's kind of. I think going to be using this as more of a prep for down the line. He seems like the, the type of horse who wants to just go a little longer. Um, you know, global campaign wouldn't shock, but I'm a little bit worried because we just haven't seen, you know, we've seen him race to the bench again, race to the bench again, but he hasn't done a whole hell of a lot wrong, and he was super highly regarded. The nine actually has an opportunity. If anyone could clear, it might be the nine, and that's, you know, with Baracho, he doesn't have to be coming from... Dead last, maybe because he's fresh, he could be a little bit closer today. You know, not not on the lead close, but you know, fifth, sixth, maybe mid pack or so. Um, so let's use the seven Baracho. We'll make a win wager on him if we can get about you know six to one or so. The nine Yorkton. If you're playing any late exotics, make sure to use him. Um, and then underneath, I think you'd you'd have the two and the four. But for me, I think seven and nine the opportunity in here, and in particular, you know, the nine with that that kind of. Recency edge and maybe the tactical edge over uh, over some others in here with with the speed and with the outside draw. That's a Gulfstream Park for Saturday. Let's get you over to Oaklawn for Saturday. Oaklawn Park for Saturday. Let's uh, get you to race number three. So get your past performances out. We're talking April twenty fifth, Oaklawn Park and race number three. We're gonna go to the four. I lived it. He, in his debut, he had a fine start. He was close up, he was fifth, he was tucked inside, and then he he was starting to travel well and he wanted to go, but he went right up on the heels of arrival. He had nowhere to go. Now you get the drop in class, 
and he just he doesn't have to improve a ton in here to be right in contention with some of the others and because you not you don't have top notch connections you get the price built in he should be more like a 5 to 1 shot and if he's anything above that make sure to put a win wager on him and use him in all exotics you, you know the one wooden shock who dropped down and 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 proved that the maiden claimers were a better level from him for him the, the 7 obviously north side would be no shock in here but the 4's got a shot and any improvement at all Puts him right there, and, and we get that logical second out improvement with a horse who has some tactical speed, who's going to be dropping in class. Let's give the four. I lived it. Top billing in race number three. Let's get you to race number five. And the fifth race, we'll go to the nine. Boyfriend Material. He's going to go first, start off the claim for... Uh, trainer Jason Barkley who's very very capable with new acquisitions and then you claim him and you immediately geld him and you give him plenty of time we, we last saw him at the end of February and in that race he had to take back from the inside because he was in tight and he kind of he had, you know the rail horse broke slow so he ends up on the rail he gets shuffled back he couldn't you know get to the major pace factor that day he is best when he can just sit really really close and right off the pace But he has enough speed to go get the lead If nobody else goes I like when you have that little bit of versatility Let's give the 9 boyfriend material um, Our money And we'll make him the top selection here If we can get anything you know, 7-2 to two is where my value line On boyfriend material is In the 6th race This is a horse who I last saw Over at uh, Who I last saw win at Sam Houston He was at Oakland Park last time out And it was a slow start. He was last. He was four wide chasing. He moved into contention, and he ran a little bit better than it looks. It, he was just kind of against the race shape that day, and he was just a little far out of it. That also was a race that his second start off of a very long layoff, so he may have regressed a little bit off the big effort, but his top races are good enough to win. Those That's what I'm always looking for when I'm handicapping a race, okay? I'm looking for horses who... And every race is different, right? You're not able to find those in a lot of races. But the horse that the horses that I love are the ones that didn't run really well last time out, but they might have had a reason. And when you start to dig, you can go, wow, you know what? This horse's good races are definitely good enough to beat this field. Horses don't always fit that profile. You know, um, some horses you, have, have, you can look back at and you're like, you know what? They've never been good enough to win a race like this. That's not the case with Awesome Saturday here. Uh, I think this is a great, great fit. He's going to be making his third start off the really, really long layoff. Let's go with the eight. Awesome Saturday. If we can get anything around five to one, we'll make a win wager on that one. Time to move to race number eight at Oakland Park. We'll hit uh, the, the last four races here with eight, nine, ten, and eleven. So race number eight. You're probably going to get some speed from the one, flat out, spe- flat out speed. You're probably going to get some pace from the three, Budiyama. The four is sneaking out. Should be pretty close up. Um, you're looking at the eight, ready to runway, who's going to show some pace. The nine, bye-bye, Jay, is going to show some speed. This race should set up really well for the ten, beautiful tail. So if you go back to January the 9th, she's coming off the bench, and she runs into a horse named La Femme Royale, who had won her third in a row and her fourth of five. And Beautiful Tail just misses that day at Fairgrounds, going six furlongs. Then comes back uh, most recently. And it's just a field of four. 
and she ends up last, and she gets, like, a little bit outrun, and almost, you know, she's, like, six or seven lengths back, she's almost, like, distance from the field, then she starts to close really well, she just misses that day, and she's big on the gallop out behind um, a horse who comes right back to win next out, I think Beautiful Tail is in a great spot here, we'll make a win wager if we can get anything around six to one, if you're playing any late pick fours or anything, make sure to throw in the ten, Beautiful Tail. Um, perhaps a late pick four single for me will come in The Bachelor with the number three, Echo Town, who, I mean, he's a trouble trip away from being undefeated in his three starts. He was uh, a nice debut winner. Then he came back on February the 23rd. He had a good start. He was inside of, uh, of three, and he was right on the lead, and he kind of took back a little bit, and then he got shuffled. He lost a few lengths. He dropped from, like, third all the way back to sixth, and it was kind of an, just an indecisive ride that cost him If he would have maybe gone or taken back But he was just in no man's land He got the shuffle He really uh, rallied up nicely on the inside for third Then he came right back to crush He's proven in the slop He's run well on the fast track And like I said, he, he should be undefeated um, If not for that trouble on February the 23rd Ginobili um, He didn't have the best of starts and he needs to be a little closer to the lead I wouldn't uh, be shocked to see him run a little bit better But I'm against eight rings in here um, I'm just willing to take a shot against him He's kind of quirky He's had a, uh, been a horse who's been his own worst enemy He's, you know, had a while It's been a while for him getting back to the races So I think we're better off taking a shot elsewhere And to me, Echo Town is going to get played a little bit in here. I wouldn't be shocked if he's anything around, you know, two to one, five to two. And if he's at five to two, that to me is value in this race. Uh, long weekend on the outside. Just want to give them a mention because this is a, a really sharp one who's in good form and very, very quick. But let's go with Echo Town, who has the ability to sit. In race ten, this is the Carousel. Um, Bellafina's the class of the field, no doubt about it. But she's in a tough spot with the rail draw. Because she's probably not the quickest in here And then she's going to be stuck in that spot Where things could get really difficult for her So, you know Do you want to take an extremely short price on her? I'm not. I'm okay if you don't want to I understand if you think she's just the, the class of the field But to me, the, the draw for Mia Mischief Is going to make her very, very tough in here She's a grade one winner And she made her return to the races on March the 20th She hadn't raced from November to March she sat close up on the inside She got shuffled early She was like 5th, 6th She was a couple lengths off, 2-3 off And she had to move in between She kind of forced her way through It was a really nice comeback race She got her comeback out of the way Whereas a horse like Bellafina hasn't raced since the end of 2019 But now she gets the outside draw Does Mia Mischief With her running style On a track that she likes I mean she rarely throws in a bad race This is a great spot for her Let's go with the 8 Mia Mischief, if she's over 5-2 to two, We're going to play her um, And make sh- maybe even uh, build some late exotics Around her And then to close things out In race number 11 I mean, who's going to get the lead in here? There is no speed signed on on paper You have a couple horses stretching out from sprints And to me, it's got to be Violent Pass that gets, the, that gets to the front So in his debut on March the 7th He... Was like right up on the lead He was sitting really really close He was a good third that day And you know you expected him to Again get a similar trip on April the 11th But he had a brutal Brutal start He was back to 10th of 12 He was way out of it Now he's going to stretch out And 
he was quick. I mean, in that debut, he's a step, a st- first step slow, and then he's really quick. He got right to the lead, then he decides to sit third when a couple others went, and he ends up running a good third that day. He was asked for a three-wide move, and he ends up losing to an experienced horse um, who was the favorite that day named Liam's Pride. So his two races... The, the, the debut is good when he's flashing speed. Then he has legitimate trouble, a race that you can excuse. That's going to build up your price a little bit. You get two sprints to a route, and he should be right on the engine in a race that has not a lot of speed on paper. Make sure to use the three. Violent pass. I mean, if he's over 6-1, to one, we're going to bet him to win. He feels more like a 5-6-1 to one shot in this race where there's just not a ton of speed, and he could have a major advantage on this group early on. That's the three. Violent pass. So, uh, just to remind you for Oaklawn Saturday, uh, race number three, the number four, I lived it. Uh, race number the fifth race, let's go to the number nine, Boyfriend Material. If we can get like seven to two, we'll make a wager there. Use that one in your exotics. The sixth race, don't forget about Awesome Saturday. The eight, anything over five to one seems fair. The eighth race, the number 10, Beautiful Tail, anything around six to one or so. Seems like the price that we want. Race number nine, the three Echo Town. Let's go uh, five to two or so, and, and maybe a single in some late exotics. Wouldn't talk you off building some exotics around the number uh, eight Mia Mischief in race number 10. Uh, anything around five to two seems fair on her. And then in the final race at Oakland Park on Saturday, the number three Violent Pass and around six to one. Let's get you over to. Oaklawn for Sunday. Going to have a few Sunday plays for you this week, just at Oaklawn, and we'll just go in the, the late pick four. So here's kind of how I'm going to approach this is basically if you're playing the late races at Oaklawn, don't play, uh, make sure to throw these horses in your t- on your pick four ticket. Okay? Here's, uh, here's uh, the approach. In race number seven, so remember we're at Oaklawn on Sunday, April the 26th. Look at the eight. NJ's Brass. So his April 11th race, it's, you know, it looks okay on paper, but it's much better than that. He sits a cl- he sits close up, he's inside, but then immediately he's in tight. He starts to lose ground, he's pushed back, he has nowhere to go, he starts losing, you know, he, he ends up losing like four lengths. He goes from, you know, maybe a length off to, he's like five out of it. He comes on again in between horses, and... He's not far behind Madison Way, who just looks like she ran a lot better because she finished third and NJ's Brass finished fifth. But NJ's Brass might have been better. He had some legitimate trouble in there. Let's go with the eight, NJ's Brass. Let's make a win wager on this one if we can get anything around the six to one or so on this filly. That's in race number seven, which starts your late pick four, so make sure to include her in those late pick four tickets. And then a, a price in race number eight to take a look at. The 12 Slime Queen, who takes the blinkers off. You can probably toss the race in the slop last time out. And she was behind a horse named Lucky Betty, who just came back to win very impressively against First Level Allowance Company. That was Slime Queen's first start in a couple months. Probably needed the race. First start at Oaklawn Park. Now she's going to cut back to six furlongs, which is a little bit interesting because she's only been going um, a mile plus in her you know five race career, and she ran really well in the first couple starts of her career, a couple of them on the grass and one of them on uh, the synthetic at Arlington. We just don't know at all what sprinting on the dirt is going to be like for her. But if she's a price, if she's like eight to one or over, she's absolutely worth taking a shot because what I like about her 
she showed some route speed last time out. Now she's going to cut back to the to the the elongated sprint. I don't think she's slow. I don't think she has to be way way out of it, but she should come rolling late and have a lot of bottom. So I'm willing to give this one a shot in some of the late exotics here. The number twelve slime queen. If we can get around eight to one, let's make a win wager on slime queen. And then in race number nine, we go to the six charming lady. This might be a you know, Edgeway is going to be really tough. If if she gets, you know, able to, if she's able to clear up front, she'll be tough. But the one Wasabi Girl isn't exactly slow. The two Sakani shouldn't be far out of it. The three Misty Blue has some speed. She could be right up in the mix. Um, the seven has some pace. The eight has some pace. We look at the, the 12 has some speed. I mean, there's a lot of these young fillies who could be right up on the engine, could make it really tough in here for Edgeway. That's going to be perfect for Charming Lady who was really nice in her sprint race in her debut when she sat off the pace like a pro and won. And then she stretched out twice, and she tried to go a little bit longer. And I just don't think she really wants to go long. Um, Last time, she sat second, or maybe not long this early at this moment. Uh, She sat second. She was just off, but she just couldn't get by Fire Corral. Uh, She loomed up. She was right on even terms, and she actually took the lead, but she just hung a little bit late. This cutback is going to help her a ton. And this is the kind of race where I'm fine playing against Edgeway with a lot of other speed in here. Let's use the six Charming Lady in all exotics. We'll make a win wager if we can get anything around 5-2. to two. Closing things out in the 10th at Oaklawn on Sunday. Um, I'm a little surprised that the 10 was 10-1 to 1 on the morning line. Shocking fast. Maiden Special Weight winner at Oaklawn on February the 29th. Uh, then... On April the 3rd, was four wide into the turn, sat third, was a couple lengths off, moved to second, but was all in early, holds fourth. Now you get the cutback, um, going third start off the very long layoff. This horse was only 5-2 to two last time out in a similar spot. Going long, now you cut back to we uh, a sprint distance where she's actually had success. She's going to be making her third start off a long layoff. I mean, I, I'm not going to play any exotics without her shocking fast the number 10 make sure to use her she feels a lot more like a four to one shot to me if we can get anything you know over seven to two we're making a win wager on the number 10 shocking fast so uh the horses that we like today at oakland park a uh, that we like on sunday the 26th at oakland park seventh race number eight nj's brass uh, make sure you get around six to one or so eighth race to 12 slime queen anything around eight to one or so seems fair Ninth race to six, Charming Lady. Anything around five to two, maybe a, a late exotics horse to build uh, around. And in the tenth race, the number ten, Shocking Fast at seven to two. Best of luck this weekend with all of your horse racing. We are going to take a break. We're going to hear from one of our sponsors, and then immediately following that break, it's going to be closing time with WrestleMania six. We go through. Every match on the WrestleMania 6 card, all the promos, we set you up what was happening in the world of the WWF back in 1990. Andrew Champagne, Darren Zocali, we have a lot of fun. So if you're a wrestling fan, not even a current wrestling fan, right? If you're an old wrestling fan, you remember the days of the Macho Man and Hulk Hogan, Ultimate Warrior, um, Andre the Giant. We had Jesse the Body Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon on commentary, Bobby the Brain Heenan, Jimmy Hart. The managers out there having a ton of fun. Jake the Snake's in this show. So 
Lots of fun to talk about. We get a little nostalgic. We go back in time. It's going to be WrestleMania 6 with the boys immediately following a word from one of our sponsors. One of the sponsors of That's What G Said podcast is Cindy Carava, full-service realtor. And I am here over in Glendora at Coldwell Banker with Cindy Carava. Cindy, how was 2019 for you? Tell us uh, a little bit about what uh, what kind of stuff you were working on. Hi, Gino. Thanks for having me. Uh, 2019 was just really great. Uh, I had a great year uh, selling homes all the way from Altadena, Arcadia, Monrovia, out to Upland and Ontario just recently. Um, the market has, has been uh, really good. Um, we're looking forward to 2020 with an increase in home prices about 5.8% this year, opposed to last year where it was a little softer. We saw uh, more like homes averaging about 3.5% in increase in value. Um, it's also looking great for buyers. Uh, the interest rates right now are going to be staying under 4%. So if you've been on the fence about thinking about buying a home, now is the time to do so with interest rates still staying low. And you offer more services than just the buying, selling, and leasing homes. Tell us about some of the other services that you offer and what a full service realtor really is. So you're right, Gino, besides me being uh, a full-service realtor of uh, finding properties for my clients to buy or selling their homes or finding rentals for them, um, I also have a plethora of resources like uh, handyman, contractors, electricians, plumbers. Uh, I even, if, like I said, if you're thinking about getting a home loan, I actually work with two great lenders that I can recommend to anybody. And you're all over the internet, social media, websites. Let us know some of the places where we can find you. I know I've seen some reviews on Yelp and on Zillow. They, everyone always has positive things to say. Everybody hears me raving about you all the time. But where can uh, everyone else find out information about you or contact? Thank you, Gino. Yeah, I am on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, and uh, you can contact me on my website, which is www.cindycarava.com or my email, which is cindyc.realtor at gmail.com, or feel free to call or text me on my cell phone, which is 626-394-6400. Cindy is awesome. She's one of the kindest and most genuine people I've ever met. I promise you, you will enjoy every minute you interact with her. So thank you very much, Cindy. Uh, Appreciate all of your support from That's What She Said podcast. Thank you, Gino. Have a great day, everyone. The WrestleMania rewatch, rewind, recap train rolls on Gorilla, Gorilla, and we are up to WrestleMania 6 now. I guess we're actually back to WrestleMania 6 because we moved forward to uh, WrestleMania 13. Now we're going back in time to WrestleMania 6. We're going back to 1990 and Darren Zocali, Andrew Champagne here to join me. Fellas, thanks for doing this again. Um, th- this was a fun Show and just kind of overall, and not when you look at the, this show compared to four and five, which were in the convention hall, which were in the convention hall in, in New Jersey and Atlantic City. The scope of this one, this one felt a lot more like that WrestleMania three did than than those last couple. This has that big show feel. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, sixty seven thousand and change up there in the Sky Dome. I mean, a monster stadium. Loud from from the word go, uh, and and it had a you know a, a very big card in terms of you know matches fourteen matches none of them particularly long outside of the main event, uh, so you get like a lot of rapid fire 
you know, most of them are fun. They're entertaining. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple of funny spots in it. Uh, up to this point, I, I would say probably the second best WrestleMania uh, as of, you know, as of 1990. And it's probably the second best up until WrestleMania 10, in my opinion. Okay. I'm going to be the grouch. Gino. Here comes Darren, Oscar. Here comes the proposition for you. I'm going to give you a 14-match card with a lot of big names at the peaks of their respective powers or on the ascendancy in some cases. It's going to sound really good. Here's the kicker. There's one all-time great match. There's a couple of really good matches, including some that surprised me when I was re-watching. But about two-thirds of it is going to leave you wondering, why did they book this here? Did this have to happen? Is That's a good this point. not a house show? It, this seemed like it, they were, it, it's not, it seemed like it was. It's something so completely different from the WrestleManias that we're used to seeing now over the last 10 or 15 years. This seemed like, in a lot of ways, they were trying to get guys on the card, trying to get guys a payday, and they were doing stuff where you're wondering, who are they booking for? And it yeah. just seemed like a lot of guys were spinning their wheels. I'll agree with Darren to a point. Some of this stuff was really fun. Some of it, though, as I rewatched, left me scratching my head, and we'll get into it as we go match by match. They seem to be like there were a few too, just kind of off the top. That they're like starting the builds with a lot of these guys, and so we get these weird kind of squashy toy type matches, like Rick Martel's kind of you know newly turned heel. They're building up Earthquake. Uh, they're building up the Barbarian. Jim Duggan kind of getting a win because he's got the thing going on with Earthquake. They big boss man just turned. There's just a lot of things that are like just kind of I think starting, which is weird because WrestleMania we like you mentioned Andrew we we've come to know it and even early on as kind of more of like a culmination an ending of these feuds where we feel like we're gonna get like a definitive result that was not the case here. Um and to me like. Jesse just steals this show. I mean, this was like one of the unbelievable rewatches of like Jesse the Body on the commentary, and we'll hit a lot of the spots. But I mean, he, it's unfortunate because um, there's actually one point through the show when they're showing the uh, um, the promotional stuff for next year's WrestleMania, which oh, we've boy. already covered, and they're talking about how it's going to be at the Coliseum, which we know that it, it's not. It's funny because Jesse says, yeah, me and all my Hollywood friends were going to be there, you know, and it's like, nope, you're not, and none of them are going to be, you, you won't be, so uh, weird how much stuff changes, but he was really letting loose, and uh, he got he got pretty crazy in a couple different spots throughout this, but I, I think I kind of feel like right in the middle of the two of you, um, I like a lot of this show uh, Watching back, watching it back And I'm glad that a lot of the bad Is quick But we, I think you hit it right Andrew, like there are a lot of And, and then what I, I would when, Where I totally agree with Darren and what we're talking about is that The scope of this mania is what makes Even some of those ant matches A little bit better And the moments seem a little bit more Because the crowd is fun, crazy Even that wave like thing that they have going um, for a little while, and and there are some moments here, but there it, it was it was not what we've known as the the way WrestleMania was booked. So we'll get through uh, each of the matches like we do. But Darren, I know you've you're you've uh, mentioned a bunch of times you you're a big warrior guy, and this was this was basically the passing of the torch show. We we very rarely. I mean, I can't recall like ever at this point would see 
like the Intercontinental Champion and the the World Champion in a feud. It was generally like those were different worlds. They were kind of like different divisions. They were like different tiers. They would very rarely be battling, and we, we did not almost ever see. Like good guy, good guy matches And bad guy, bad guy matches It was very simple the way they set things up Most of the time, you got your good guy You got your bad guy, so this was new On a couple different accounts And then throw the fact in that You know, the man who Vince McMahon Basically built his company on the back of uh, You know, the new the WWF Over the past five years, he's going to be Passing the torch here to a new star There were a lot of things that were Kind of different, unique, and actually very fun about this uh, about this show. I'm sure as a Warrior fan, you really love it. Yeah, and this is you know this is the Warriors moment. Uh, you know this is he has a couple other moments later on, but this this is his big moment. Um, looking back on it, I look back on it with some disappointment in that his WWE career did not you know escalate from here. Um, you know, the title run that he gets is meh. He's got a good feud with Rick Rude. They put on some good matches, but it could have been, they could have been a lot more there. Uh, he never gets the title back again, and he goes through the issues that he has with Vince in and out of the company, so on and so forth. But uh, it's a great moment. It's a great ending. Uh, and as we kind of touched on, I think a couple of shows ago, you have two guys in in the ring that are monster personalities you know, charisma, all that fun stuff, but neither of them much of a worker in the ring. And you get, for their skill levels, an A-plus match, uh, which is really all you can ask for, and uh, it makes it a lot of fun. And at this point, as a kid, Warriors got the title. Um, The only other time I ever remembered heavyweight title versus intercontinental title on a pay-per-view was Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels. 92 Survivor Series, right? Yeah, but Sean's belt wasn't on the line, so yep. it was not mm-hmm. really a title for title match. Um, yeah, but that was you know good guy versus bad guy, uh, and and most of all, you always wondered what color Warrior was going to make the the title belt. It was blue for a while; it ends up becoming purple. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great moment as a Warrior guy. Uh, you know, I was uh, beyond pumped when that three hit for sure. The thing with Warrior that killed him more than anything else after this is something that we've talked about a lot. For a long time, WWF had a big problem building up main event level heels. Yes. They had Rick Rude, and Rude was very good for what he was. But very few people really bought Rude as a threat to the title. He had already gotten the Intercontinental title belt. He was on the verge. They may be having a run with it, maybe being believable. But he came up to a glass ceiling that he could never break through. And then he went to WCW where he quietly had a tremendous run to end his career before he Mm -hmm. unfortunately got hurt. After Rude, you had Ted DiBiase, who his glory days were several years before that. He could still work, and he still had value in the right settings, but he wasn't a main event level guy. Hulk had Andre the Giant. Hulk had Rowdy Roddy Piper. Warrior gets those two guys, and then he jobs to Sergeant Slaughter at the Royal Rumble. Some of it may be due to the fact that Warrior didn't take off like Hogan did. In fairness, very few wrestlers in history ever have, but he didn't exactly have a lot of help from the guy that the fans were supposed to hate in Rude and DiBiase. It, those just didn't take as top level heels that you bought challenging warrior for that kind of title. 
it it would have been nice and i think they were just trying you know savage had just been in the picture for a couple years it would have been so much nicer if they could have just really like skipped over that whole slaughter thing you know and it could have been savage you know against warrior for the title that would have just been a much better program for warrior as, as far as like getting good matches i think the crowd interest in savage people are always interested in savage much more than you mentioned rude earthquake was in the mix sometimes with him here so he didn't he didn't get the benefit of the doubt and it's 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 really interesting where he goes, you know, over the next couple of years because we see him, you know, obviously next year where he has that great match with with Savage, and then uh, we see him in '92 just come out at the end of the the show, which I think I think we're gonna a show we're gonna talk about maybe in the next couple of weeks or so. Um, but let, let's jump into it. We'll uh, we'll hit on everything as we get um, into uh, each of the matches. So um, we get things started as uh, as Darren mentioned. 67,000 plus 678 is the number And this was one of those fun shows Because there were a lot of future uh, WWE wrestlers Who went to this show We we know we've heard about how Edge and Christian were there um, I, I think Lance Storm Was there, uh, Renee Young uh, Was there also So basically a, a lot of these young folks Were able to uh, convince their family to, to get them to Wrestlemania here And we got those Um the little mini rings back that would that that I always really liked that would take them down to the uh, entrance ramp because the entrance way was so long so they're in a little mini ring which is like a cart that they designed to look like a mini ring we saw that in WrestleMania 3 um and uh it, it's a ton of fun so we are and for the first time we're in Canada we're for the we're the first time we're outside of the United States we are in the Sky Dome and uh, as we had mentioned unfortunately this is the last not even the last WrestleMania. This is the last pay per view that Jesse the Body ever did um, with the WWF. I think he did some superstars right after this, but he goes out with a bang here. We get the opening montage. <laughs> so, what do you guys think of this, Darren? Where you know what? It's it's kind of corny, but it, it works for the time. You know, looking back on it now, it's like Vince is doing this whole. It's like a big space galaxy thing, and the two biggest forces in the world are Hulkamania, you know, and they are Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior, and they collide here. So this is another one of the the shows, and and this feels a lot like Mania Three. I think. When we look back on it, Mania Three had more hidden gems and and like a better match quality throughout the show. But it feels a lot like it when that when that big stadium, big show feel, and it really built around this one big match. Yeah, it, it did. It, it was culminating with you know the big blow off um, between Hogan and Warrior. But yeah, the intro is interesting. Uh, and, and you know, in the beginning, I kind of forgot about it, and I and I'm starting to look. It's like astrology symbols in the sky, and I really, <laughs> I really didn't get it. But then you know you, they they have like the 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 outline of, of Hogan and Warrior and I'm like all right you know big titans in the sky okay yeah I get it I get it um, you know but uh, I, the one thing I remember with Hogan and Warrior coming into this the moment that they had in the Royal Rumble where you know you're watching it and 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 they square off and they start to plant the seeds of what's to come and looking back at that moment like you have Jesse Ventura going look at this. Look at this, you know, it's just it's great <laughs> And then you get like a couple of bumps, you get the crisscross, they double clothesline each other, and that's it. I mean, I get it. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to give away for free what you can sell. I get it. But I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of the Hogan Warrior there in the Rumble, maybe just a couple of minutes. But they do start to plant the seeds. But you're right. Jesse goes out with a bang, 
probably knew that this was it for him. And if you know Jesse Ventura and you watch his post-WWE interviews and the stuff that was going on with Vince and a lot of the animosity and the lawsuits and all that stuff, it wouldn't have taken a whole lot to light a fire underneath Jesse's ass here. <laughs> and soaring with some quotes, and he sure brought it this time around. All right, I've got three notes here right off the bat before we get into the very first match of the show. I thought the promo to open things with Vince was really creepy. I got where they were going, but it sort of fit where Hogan and the Warrior were coming from with their promos because neither guy made any sense. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. So why should Vince be expected to make any sense? I feel like he took that tone and he did the creepy overdone William Shatner voice that he sometimes does. The thing I remember about the open, if you watch really closely, and again, I'm a television radio guy by trade. That's my background. I can see this stuff. You have to look closely. Jesse Ventura looks at the wrong camera in the two shot with gorilla and Jesse, Jesse on the left gorilla on the right. Jesse's looking at the wrong camera for about 80% of that. And then right as Gorilla Monsoon sending it down to ringside, you see Ventura's eyes ever so subtly dart to the correct camera and he tries to hold in laughter. It's a really cool little Easter egg if you can go back and see it because you see the wheels turning in Jesse's head and it's almost like, okay, I know I screwed up. That's either not going to happen again or it's going to happen every single time in this (laughs) sequence and I'm going to make it a gigantic running gag. They go down to the ring. Robert Goulet fires up O Canada. O Canada is such a better national anthem than ours. It's not even funny. You had the entire crowd standing and cheering and you hear, we stand on guard for thee. Like, it's a great national anthem. And, it, you know, you feel chills when you hear game seven of an NHL uh, playoff series. It's That was really cool. And that leads into Coco Beware against Rick Martell. But the, the opening, it's, it's memorable for a variety of reasons. It's a strange mishmash of things that wind up going down there. So we get Coco versus Rick Martell. Uh, you know, whenever you see Coco out here on a pay-per-view, he's going to be losing. Um, that, that, <laughs> that, that, that's what's happening. Uh, with, uh, love the guy. He was a, a good hand for a while, but his job here was to help get the uh, the new Rick the Model Martell over this uh, this heel role. And you know, Coco came out firing for the first you know minute or so, and he did he had some of his fun offense. But basically, we're we're gonna get. Um, a, a little bit of a elongated squash here Where Coco ends up giving up to the Boston Crab Which was one of my favorite moves To uh, put my little sister in <laughs> And when we were young and doing wrestling moves Just get her stuck in the Boston Crab And the sharpshooter loved getting her in In one of those uh, Your Coco... poor sister man <laughs> Coco quits at uh, 3 minutes and 51 seconds Yeah I mean there's not much to it You know Martel gets You know goes over here uh, by the way, you know, Coco to this day, if you watch some of his interviews, he, he's pretty bitter about, you know, how he was just a jobber and uh, talks about the fact that a lot of promises were made and, you know, dollar signs put in front of him that never really came came to fruition. Uh, and, and, I mean, he was a fun character. And you don't realize Coco Beware was in the WWE for almost 10 years. He was really over, too. yeah. I mean, the crowd loved him. They loved him. The young kids loved him with Frankie. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he would always get a pop. Remember when him and Owen Hart put together that tag team high energy? And, Mm -hmm. you know, 
I mean, he also had the know, one with uh, with Nyhart, or no, that Owen had the one with Nyhart. I was gonna say he, I think oh, he yeah, did yeah, with yeah. Nyhart too a little bit too at one point. But yeah, he he and he had a good career before coming to WWF. He was like main event level and even like a heel in in a lot of his spots. Like he could like young Coco could really go. No, he could. Yeah, I mean, you got some high flying stuff from him too. He had a very sweet looking drop kick. I always enjoyed that drop kick. Um, you know, good worker, but like you said, I mean, always, always a guy that's going to be a jobber, uh, had to hang around wrestling for a long time because he needed the money. It's, you know, it's a sad story. He lost his wife about 10 years ago as well. Uh, and believe it or not, he was even sued, you know, by the WWE about five years ago, um, pertaining to like the concussion lawsuit. So, you know, he's had a tough life, unfortunately, but uh, a fun worker, but yeah, I mean, this match is what you think it is. It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point, and Martel goes over with the uh, with the Boston crowd. We talk a lot about Coco being a good worker. People forget how good Rick Martel yep. was, possibly mm-hmm. because of the arrogance gimmick. But if you have the time, check his AWA stuff, check his old NWA stuff. This guy could go. Rick Flair in his biography points out, hey. When he wanted to be, this guy was as good as Ricky Steamboat. And that's as high a praise as he can give anybody, especially coming from the source. The one thing I remember from this match, there is either a botch or a really good delayed sell where Martell either bumps for nothing in a daze (laughs) or he does a delayed sell after going down to the mat, coming up too early and maybe doing a flare thing. It's sort of impossible to tell. Look at this match. Let me know what you think. But yeah, uh, speaking uh, as far as the match goes, it is what you expect it to be. Martell winds up going over, has a nice little run with the WWF, and this was uh, this was one of the main starts of it. Yeah. I'll, by the way, Gino, I'll jump in real quick. Yeah. Um, the Dino Bravo Viceland uh, Dark Side of the Ring was this week, a couple of nights before we taped this. Uh, we'll talk about Dino. He has a match later on. But Rick Martel was was a good friend of Dino Bravo's. And you see in that Viceland story, and if you haven't seen it, go back and watch it, um, where the, he's only given one interview in his life where he actually talks about what happened with Dino Bravo. Uh, wow. He pretty much always refuses to talk about it. Uh, it's something that's haunted him for a long time. And, uh, you know, when you, when you do see parts of this WrestleMania, when we're going to see Andre coming up in a couple of minutes, uh, when we're going to see Dino Bravo later, where you do, f- and Snuka too, um, there is some sadness built into some yeah. of the, mm-hmm. the characters of this WrestleMania, and we'll talk about that as we go on. Yeah, and even with Warrior, I think I told, I said to both of you guys, yeah. like the the Hogan promo is like so eerily similar when we'll get to it yeah. to like one of the pro- the promo that Warrior cut like the night before he died when he was on Monday Night Raw. It was like he was it was almost like he had been watching back WrestleMania six. And it like heard that, and that was like a lot of that stuff was in his head. It was it was really it's really weird. Some of these are, are fun to watch back, but then you get you have a moment or two where you you get a little sad when we catch a, um, you know the, the different combinations or different uh, different matches here. Um, we get Mean Gene uh, backstage with Bobby the Brain and the the tag team champions, the Colossal Collection. He calls them what like the colonoscopy connection, colostomy, colostomy. Yeah, it was. Uh, and his 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 little uh, back and forth with Bobby Heenan was just great. Heenan mm-hmm. does all the talking naturally because come on, it's Haku and Andre the Giant. You're not paying them to talk. Yeah, 
nothing nothing crazy just a, a quick little uh, a little interview and then uh, Sean Mooney has demolition they're now the baby faces so we get demolition out they're trying to win the tag team titles for the third time so Andre and Haku are the colossal collection uh, connection and Bobby and uh, and demolition it's crazy to think that Andre was already struggling three years before this in WrestleMania three with all the stories about how his body was giving out on him. Would he even be able to, to you know, to do a lot in that match? You know, was he going to be able to work with Hogan because he was not, you know, in, in good spirits? And this is three years later, and so could you can imagine how much, unfortunately, like more frail and how much less he could even do at this point. I didn't even remember until watching this back. That he doesn't get in the match Andre He does not even tag into this match He's standing on the apron you know And Haku's working the whole match And there's there are many times where Haku will bring You know one member of Devolution over And Andre will get a jab in or a kick And I think like, once he came into the ring To break something up When he went through the ropes And then went back out But he did not get into this match legally At all We get the spot at the end where Andre gets tied up in the ropes I mean this was pretty basic formula But you could just see like They obviously had to plan around the fact that Haku don't tag Andre Because Jesse was mentioning it Gorilla was even mentioning it Like I think it's time to tag the big man He just couldn't get in He couldn't really do a whole lot here This was all about the moment This was about giving Andre his baby face turn His his moment with, uh, with Bobby there at the end Him to get the slap Demolition super over The last couple minutes of this match are fun it's kind of fun when Andre kind of comes in He gets involved and it's a little chaotic um, Demolition was super super hot Super popular here This was actually kind of a start after this Of a, of a heel turn for them yep. But um, yeah this was more to me like of the moment Obviously Haku does a damn good job In there for the nine minutes that he's in Just getting <laughs> getting his butt kicked <laughs> Yeah yeah I, The match starts Well I'll, I'll even go to the promo that you spoke about You know before the match If you watch the promo Andre is holding on to Haku during the promo. He's got his arm around him. Um, Then they come into the ring, and there's a little skirmish to begin with. Andre throws a punch and a headbutt, and he almost falls down. Mm -hmm. And he has to grab the ropes. He holds on to the ropes, walking out of the ring. He comes in one more time for a breakup, throws two punches again. The entire match, holding on to the ropes, holding on to the ropes, ties himself up in the ropes. I mean, the the poor guy can't do anything. Uh, and it's really sad, you know, to watch this and to see that and know now, you know, when you're watching it and I was six years old, you know, you, I didn't you know. Don't realize. No, you don't yeah. realize. Yeah. You don't realize. You know, you have no, you have no clue. You know, I, for me, when I was, I mean, Andre the Giant is just this guy who's like, you know, for me, all these guys are new. You know, I just started watching this stuff. I'm six years old. Um, yeah. I mean, Haku does everything, obviously. This is pretty, I, I don't even remember how they turned Demolition heel. I know this is when they started to add in Crush yep. after this, but I don't know. I don't remember exactly like what event took place that turned them heel. Um, maybe Andrew when he jumps in, he he could fill. So I, I don't remember. But I don't either. The match, yeah, the match is you know it is what it is. It's Demolition versus Aku. You know we get the uh, we get the fun finish at the end. You get the Andre, you know, smacking Bobby around, which everybody obviously wants to see. He paintbrushed him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, one one of those he missed by about six inches. But uh, but then, you know, it is nice looking back on this 
to see him get the send off. This is his last match. Yeah. Uh, in WWE with the crowd on their feet, cheering Andre the giant one more time as he literally rides off into the sunset. We'll see him a couple more times. We'll see him at WrestleMania seven. We'll see him at SummerSlam 91, not in a wrestling capacity, but uh, this match for me, yeah, demolition wins and eventually he's going to drop the belt to the hearts. But this match is all about the end for Andre the giant. And that's, that's, how a, that's a moment. Back. That's one of those, that's when, what they define WrestleMania moments, him, you know, on, on his send out. Mm-hmm. All right. You guys hit all the sad notes. I'm going to hit the happy notes. The happy note here being that Demolition has their theme music for this match. Yeah. If you go back to WrestleMania 7, our recap, my main beef with the Demolition match there was no Rick Derringer music. There was no... You can't hear that song and not have a smile on your face. It's like Steve Martin's theory about a banjo. But to answer your question, Darren... Yeah, they added Crush into it, and at that point, the decision was made to turn them back heel ahead of a run against the Hart Foundation. Uh, This match, you guys mentioned the spot with Andre tying himself up in the ropes. That was one of Andre's favorite spots Mm -hmm. for a really long time. Bobby Heenan used to tell the story of when Andre was working with the Ultimate Warrior at house shows, they would do this spot, and Andre said, clothesline me softly i'll go into the ropes and tie myself up he liked doing that spot first night they did it warrior comes in 200 miles an hour bang andre goes "Mm." (laughs) and heenan goes something's gonna happen here (laughs) the second night same thing happens third night warrior comes in really fast andre sticks his fist up Hits Warrior right between the eyes, cracks the paint, Warrior starts to bleed. <laughs> the next night after that, Warrior comes off the ropes, ka-ding, ka-ding, ka-ding. <laughs> barely hits him. Andre goes into the ropes, leans over to Heenan and yells, he's learning. <laughs> I figured great. we all needed some happy stuff in there because That's you're great. right. There, there is an undercurrent of sadness in here for a lot of reasons. Andre wasn't Andre at this point anymore. And this would be one of the last times that we see one half of demolition before uh, Axe winds up retiring due to a heart condition of his own. And that necessitated them bringing crush into demolition to make that a three man unit. But this was a fun little match. I liked the ending of it, obviously with Heenan berating Andre the giant. And if you listen closely, there's a lot of words that should have been bleeped out that weren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did not that. think anyone could hear him. But if you listen, you're going to hear just this profanity-laced tirade. And Heenan is so into it, he's sweating. And you can see the promo later on in the night that I believe was cut right after this happened and just taped delayed to the intermission. But that was really cool. Andre turns back into a baby face. We see him again at WrestleMania seven. And if this was sad, WrestleMania seven was even sadder. Yeah, no, no question. By the way, you you talked about the the booking and some of it being questionable. The outcome of this match was smart booking because they, they wanted to put the belts on the heart foundation and you're not going to get a good match with the heart foundation versus Haku and Andre. You are going to get the match everybody wants to see, Heart Foundation versus Demolition. So there are going to be some questionable bookings coming up for sure. This was smart. Getting the belts to Demolition before you get it to the Heart Foundation. Cold sign on that. 
Yeah, and because I think too at this point, this was as you mentioned the very end of it. Is was it Bill the Bill Eadie character who who was getting getting ready to finish? Yeah, up, it was so, Axe. Yeah, and so you were going to get more of Crush anyway. So that's fine. You know, like let let them get the win, turn them heel. The Hearts can get the belts there. It worked. This worked out really well. I agree. We'll point out a lot of the negatives, but there was a lot of fun about with this match. This was to me not a negative throughout the night. Just the the, the sad stuff with Andre. But um, yeah, the the after moment with. Um, Andre, you know, getting his his comeuppance on Bobby the Brain, as we mentioned, we get a Mean Gene interview with Jimmy Hart, who is just really laying it on thick with the the Richter scale earthquake puns, you know, um, in here. Um, he's getting earthquake, you know, built up as you were mentioning too, Andrew. This was like another one of the heels that Ultimate Warrior had to work with, kind of at the time, who was just like, eh, you know, like he's just like. Enter other interchangeable heel There's nothing special about him Whatsoever And um, we got him Earthquake versus Hercules And Hercules is now a baby face I believe at one point they even tried to you know, Team Hercules up with the mega powers And he was kind of like a quote unquote third mega power In some different spots with the, with Macho and, uh, and Hogan years back But Hercules has been a mainstay At, at uh, these early Wrestlemanias And he's kind of another one of those Like good hands you rarely see him winning matches though uh, When you see Hercules show up But he can he can do He can give you like a decent okay couple minute match But this was just eh. I mean this was one of those things Another like 3-4 minute squash It went just over 4 minutes We're building Earthquake up He's going to be facing Hulk Hogan in that like double main event At SummerSlam later this year I don't know if you know this Gina Andrew loves big men that can move I try to keep it a secret. I really, truly do. And you know what? We're going to get into this in a little bit, but because I'm such a nice, generous guy, I'm going to let Darren go because I'm going to naturally do the thing that you can probably print a T-shirt of at this point. (laughs) I I mean, look, you know, Hercules is what he is in the ring. I think think Tenta slash Earthquake does a fine job with him, gets what he can out of him here. You know, you get a couple of power moves. You get the Greco-Roman thing. You get Hercules popping off of the ropes, trying to knock Earthquake down. You know, everybody kind of teetering with him a bit. You know, that he actually gets the crowd going when he's going to knock him down after, like, the third one. And, of course, you know, Earthquake goes down to a knee, and Hercules is like, yeah, you know, like, I'm going to put the I'm gonna put the Nelson on him and so on and so forth. And, you know, we all know that that's not going to happen. Then he tries to pick him up and, like, with, like, a <laughs> – I don't even know what you would call it. I don't know if it was like going to be an F five or a or an A <laughs> to do, but you know that was obviously not going to work. And then that's that's the end. But I mean, at this point of his career, a singles career, Hercules is being used to put over heels. This is what Earthquake needs to kind of launch him into his feud with Hogan, which is coming up. Uh, you know, you get the non bicep muscle flex from Earthquake that he loved to do. And uh, and the match is over, but I mean it's it, it's it serves the purpose, you know. It yeah. it, it puts Earthquake over, uh, and it gets him into the spot he needs to be uh, to set up the feud with Hogan, you know, into the summer. I want to say that I love this match just to hear Darren's reaction, but my feelings on this are are pretty similar to to your guys. Uh, Hercules better worker than I remember him being, and I said that about his WrestleMania three the match three match, yep. yeah, yeah. I remember him being a muscle head that worked a lot of bad matches with the ultimate warrior when warrior was coming up, but he could work when he wanted to. 
earthquake was coming up. They needed to build a heel. Hey, let's give him a win over Hercules at WrestleMania. That'll give him some momentum. And then he came back out again later to deal with Hacksaw Jim Duggan. We can talk about that in a little bit when it happens. Not a lot to this match, except earthquake gets busted up. He's bleeding from the mouth at the end of the match. And I couldn't tell whether he got stiffed or there was a botch or whatever. But uh, that's something that you notice when he's going for the splash. There's blood coming out of his mouth. And I thought that was actually a pretty cool visual because this was a big guy. And it's one of those things where it sounds like a cheesy line from a Western where someone makes someone taste their own blood and then they're in for hell. Uh, it, Earthquake winds up winning here. Right result, given that they were trying to build him up. We then go to uh, Rona Barrett, who was like a gossip reporter um, at the time. She interviews Miss Elizabeth. And we haven't really seen a whole heck of a lot of Miss Elizabeth since WrestleMania 5. Um, she was around a little bit afterwards with Hogan and stuff, but not a whole lot on TV and when, with that you know, Mega Powers match. So they talked to her, kind of ask him what she's up to, and she says she's going to be back very soon. Then we get the setup for uh, Brutus the Barber Beefcake versus Mr. Perfect. Brutus is backstage. He gets a little, has a little promo. He says he's gonna cut up the perfect record of uh, Mister Perfect. And man, I, I one thing that I knew, but going back, you know, and watching a lot of these, you know, eighty eight through ninety two, ninety three, Brutus is damn over, man. Brutus was really over. The crowd loved this guy. They loved the the barber gimmick. It worked for him. He was wearing you know colorful outfits and. Things here and there, big pop coming in And um, this match ends up going 7 minutes and 45 seconds And it, it was it was quick for a while, um, early Slowed down a little bit There's the genius out there with Mr. Perfect So he's kind of doing his thing outside of the ring He's getting involved here and there um, Using that steel scroll um, And I kind of forgot, really, that you know, Perfect is has got the advantage late He's kind of holding him over It really looks like he's just having his way with Brutus And he can get the win anytime he wants And then uh, Brutus ends up slingshotting Mr. Perfect He hits his head on the ring post And Brutus gets the cover And this was the first televised loss for Mr. Perfect uh, To Brutus the Barber Beefcake here Yeah, uh, and I believe when we were talking about Questionable booking This is the first time it's going to come up um, Now There are some other things going on That we can get into with the booking um, Barber's obviously Huge over with the crowd Perfect can work with a broomstick And I'm going to be honest with you Barber is as close to a broomstick as you can get <laughs> He is, no <laughs> I mean the entire match Is punches, kicks, and stomps Yep. And And you know Perfect trying to do Whatever he possibly can, um, having him lose off of a slingshot, you know, his first actual loss, quote unquote, you know, in canon, even though he had been losing to Warrior and house matches mm-hmm. leading up to this. But that's fine. We know, we know how that works. If it didn't happen on TV, it didn't happen back mm-hmm. then. We, we know. Um, now, why have Perfect lose this match, especially when he is going to win the Intercontinental title moving forward? It was um, weird. It was weird, but there's a reason. And the reason is, is that Barber was supposed to beat Perfect again at SummerSlam for the Intercontinental title. Yes. 
Barbara has the parasailing accident before SummerSlam, and it ends up being the Texas tornado in that spot. So when you look at it that way, it's not totally insane. However, I would still argue that you still have Perfect win this, and then you have Barber beat him for the title later if that's what the plan is. And he can cheat was. to win this match or whatever it be. Yeah. He's got the genius out there yeah. with him. It can be if you wanna if you wanna quote unquote protect Brutus, I'm fine with that. You know, yeah. that that's fine. They did that a lot in this era of, you know, protecting someone. They were it was a DQ account. We see this a couple times, and then they kind of get their heat back after Brutus can do the haircut thing. The crowd is fine with it. I agree with you. It just the, knowing what what happened moving forward is why it's weird. It's just it's it's crazy to think that Brutus was in like was at this level for a while and was at that intercontinental uh, range, Andrew. But he never held that that belt. It really pays to be friends with the right people, brother. <laughs> no, the, you guys are right. Brutus Beefcake was nothing special in the ring. He found magic with the Clippers. The Clippers got him over. And once he had it, he developed a nice little run for himself. Unfortunately, he had the parasailing accident that darn near killed him. And if you listen to some of the stories that he tells after that, it's it's horrifying. But there were a couple of different times he was supposed to win the Intercontinental title. This was the second one. The first, if you believe some of the stories floating around at the time, was SummerSlam a couple of years prior to that. He gets hurt, and the Ultimate Warrior beats the Honky Tonk yep. Man in 27 seconds. As far as this match goes, Kurt Hennig is a miracle worker. He is bumping his butt off. He does a couple of bumps over the turnbuckle that nobody was doing at the time. And he goes out of his way to make Brutus Beefcake look as good as he possibly can. I love this match, at least one part of it, when the commentary team decides, hey, let's give Kurt Hennig's dad a subtle shout out. Kurt Hennig's dad, of course, Larry the Axe Hennig. Big freaking dude. And it's alluded to the fact they talk about his old man. And Jesse Ventura goes, you going to call him an old man, Gorilla? (laughs) (laughs) Just such a great line. Beefcake gets the win. I didn't like the booking there. I get Beefcake was over. But I'm going to pose a different uh, scenario to you guys here. Say Perfect goes over. Say Perfect gets a little bit of a winning streak. Could he have potentially been a challenger for Warrior? On TV, absolutely. To bump for everybody. I want to see him taking a Warrior clothesline. 100%. Like, that would have been tremendous. It's unfortunate that he didn't get that kind of main event push when it was clear he was one of the best workers on the planet when he was motivated, when his head was clear, and when he wasn't dealing with either injuries or personal demons. Okay, next up, this oh, one. No. This oh, one. No. Looking back on. We had on, to get here, didn't we? It, we did. We had to get here eventually. And uh, looking back on this one was just wow. So, um, it's Roddy 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 Piper versus Bad News Brown. We get the the setup, um, the clips from the Royal Rumble where their feud started, and then Rowdy Roddy Piper is backstage talking to Mean Gene, and it's a profile. Of Roddy, so you're only you you know he's talking to me, Gene. You only see half of his body; it looks completely normal, like nothing. And then he uh, he steps open, and you see that he is painted half black, and then the other half of him is just the the normal Rowdy Roddy Piper, and that is from head to toe, all the way down. And they discuss. He talked about how they made 
This like special solution For the paint so that way It wouldn't come off when he sweat And that way it would be really strong And um, and actually what's a funny story is that They had a special solution to take it off And apparently Andre the Giant And somebody else stole Arnold it Skolin. There I you was go, going Skolin. to tell yeah. this story And yeah. I'm so thankful you did There you go they stole the solution and poured it out And they replaced it with water So after the match when he's going to try to get the black makeup off It won't come off He's got to go through customs From Canada back to the US With all that makeup on And it's on him They said for like the, uh, almost an entire week Before it was able to really start coming off So um, Andre ribbing backstage But from from just a A wow moment Piper cuts this promo and we know that when Piper, the thing that makes this this bad, is that we know when Piper was a heel, you know, in '84, '85, and dealing with Hogan and Mr. T, he was very, very racist to Mr. T, and uh, in, in many promos and many things. And this was this was a pretty bad one too. He says to to uh, Bad News Brown, you know, you with them big bug eyes and that nasty gnarly veins and and them out of proportion ears, and he's just cutting a promo on him. And it, it I mean, it's a it's a Roddy promo, but when you see it, it's one of those things that when we watch back that it's kind of like wow. Like it's really eye opening that uh, that they let this go down and like there wasn't someone that was like okay Rowdy like the gig is up you're not going to paint yourself half black in this match. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> it really goes to show you the, just the difference in times. Um, you know, you, you forget about like there being fallout if you did this now. You can't do it now. No, like, I mean nobody, nobody in their right mind. Would even suggest this in a meeting behind closed doors. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, like again, I was six years old. I don't know if people complained about it directly after the event. I have no idea. Um, it's just very strange. I never, even even knowing it as an adult, I never really understood what the significance of it was. I didn't get the point of it. I didn't understand why it had to be a part of the feud. A rowdy feud is going to be good because he's nuts no matter what you do. But, and, you know, you get what, what you figure you're going to get. You get a brawl, you know, rowdy is going to give you, you know, his typical crazy punches and stuff outside. You know, bad news, we know how he can be when he has brawls too. And, and look, I mean, from the selling standpoint, they sold it good. These are two guys that just do not like each other. And, you know, they, they fight up the ring, up the aisle. All the officials come down to break them up and everything. You know, all of that's fine. I mean, it does what it's supposed to do from that standpoint. But the whole time you're watching the match, you just can't help think about, you know, what else is going on. I mean, the glove. I, the, the glove on the what? hand. What is that? Is like, like, what is to be i don't I, understand and i'm just look they've done a lot of strange things uh in fact i was actually watching an old raw the other night from uh before the montreal screw job where uh it's the famous kind of scene where triple h and bret hart are in the ring excuse me triple h and hbk are in the ring and they do that kind of like mouth open looking back and forth at each other while bret hart is speaking and bret hart calls them both the abbreviated word for homosexuals. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yes, I remember this, yeah. 
1997, so again, another thing you can't possibly do today. But there's a lot of moments like this in the history of WWE that, you know, looking back on, it's like, wow, man, they forget about pushing the envelope. They went so far over the line on some things. It's wild. And that's what I take away from this match more than anything else, unfortunately. Who was this supposed to market to? That's my I don't know. question. Yeah. And you go to the, the interview Piper did and you wonder, this is the best they could do with Rowdy Roddy Piper, still a guy who had plenty of good years left with the company. This is the best they could do with Bad News Brown, a legitimate badass and an Olympic bronze medalist in judo. This is the best you can do. And then you put him in a match and you do a double count out. Like this is a candidate, in my opinion, for one of the worst matches in the history of WrestleMania, because I can't tell you what the objective was. I can't tell you who it was supposed to market to. And right off the rip, you hear Gorilla Monsoon talking about this capacity crowd seems sort of hushed. And then very mysteriously, the crowd comes alive, even though everybody on the hard camera side is in their seats. You had to think somebody backstage who was controlling the crowd, Mike, probably the same guy that's in charge whenever Roman Reigns comes out to a capacity (laughs) crowd now, was told, put the crowd mic up, put the crowd mic up. And he did, and it's so hokey, it's so tasteless, and these guys were capable of so much better with so many other guys. It's just one of those things that you wish you didn't have to rewatch, but because we're so devoted to our craft, for all of you listeners out there in podcast <laughs> land, that's what we did. You're welcome. You know, um, next was one of those things where I, I definitely appreciate it more on the rewatch. You know, as a kid, like anytime there's someone like Steve Allen on there, I'm just like not understanding his comedy or like what he's doing or what he's saying. But he does, you know, he he he, he has a lot of misses, but there are some definite hits that he has in his in his few little spots. He has a little backstage segment with the Bolsheviks where he's um he's gonna play the the Russian national anthem and he keeps playing different songs and making fun of them and they're getting mad and they're in the bathroom, which is my favorite part of this. <laughs> they couldn't find a room anywhere else. They're literally sitting in the bathroom because he's like underneath the shower and you hear the toilet flush. So um this was kind of goofy, but uh, but Steve Allen, I did. He made me chuckle a couple times throughout the show, and then we just got, I mean, an absolute squash. This was okay. Hey, the Hearts are going to be the next team. We're building them up. We're uh, for demolition now. Um, they won this match after attacking um, the Bolsheviks, who are singing the Soviet national anthem. So they attack them from behind, and this match is over in 19 seconds after the heart attack finisher. Right. Well, there's not much to talk about with the match. Uh, you know, it, it does, again, does what it's supposed to do. It's It signifies, okay, these are the next guys. These are How different from the-, the two WrestleManias that we just talked about with Brett, though, right? This one yeah. versus 13 well, and 10? <laughs> yeah. now, let's, now, let's talk about now. I'm glad you brought that up. Because while I get what this is supposed to accomplish, and it does in elevating the Hart Foundation to being the next team. Here's what bothers me. You take a look at the talent in this WrestleMania. Aside from Randy Savage, and I would argue even that Brett is probably a more technically sound wrestler than Savage. 
and per- and and Mr. Perfect. You have Bret Hart out of all of these wrestlers that are on this card in a match for 19 seconds. Yeah. Like I, and and again, I understand. You know, you I get it. You know, it's the story. It's what it's supposed to do. Whatever, that's fine. But when you take a look at some of the guys that are working in this card, this is the match that you chose to be 19 seconds. You don't in Canada, your first pay per view in Canada, your Canadian guy, one of the best wrestlers you have, is going to go in. He's going to put his hands on his hips because he doesn't like that they're singing the anthem. He's going to hit a heart attack and he's gone. That's the part of it that bothers me. Uh, it always will, while I simultaneously understand the point of what it was supposed to do. My argument here, and for the most part, Darren, I agree with you. Brett wasn't really Brett yet. He was still the tag team guy. He wasn't going to get pushed as the singles guy until after WrestleMania 7 when the Hart Foundation dropped the tag titles to the Nasty Boys. Then he was on with Mr. Perfect, and off Bret Hart went to do the great things that we all know he could do. But I like this for what it was. Brett was the Canada guy, and they give him a squash match win. I mean, you look at the Russians, you weren't going to be able to do a whole heck of a lot with these guys at this point. Nikolai Volkov was pretty well washed up. He could sing, but that was about all he could do. It's a one-bump match, and that's ultimately all they were going to be good for to give them a payday. Brett looks really good. Jim Neidhart looks really good. And you've got the challengers for demolition lined up. The tag matches on this show, there were a couple of them. We'll get to a few of them later on in the card. I found them pretty underwhelming considering yeah. the workers involved. And we'll get to one of those very shortly. Yeah, well, and that, just a weird, was, like, go ahead, Darren. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, and that also speaks to my point. Just looking back on it, in my opinion, this match should have been a 15-minute match with the Hart Foundation versus the Rockers. Yeah. That's sure. the match that should have happened. And they, this match kind of, this show could have used a match like that. Right. Just like one like that, that was pretty, because there were some solid moments, but there, but besides the Hogan Warrior, there wasn't really like a, a match that we would probably say is like, like legitimately good. Um, we come up on the next match, which was, this is the highlight of the show for me, this one. And uh, before that, they show those WrestleMania 7 uh, previews, which are going to be at the, the Coliseum. And um, we get uh, Tito Santana, who cuts a little promo backstage before his match with uh, with uh, the Barbarian. And Jesse is drooling and foaming at the mouth as Chico Santana comes walking down the ring. He is just ready to absolutely unload on Chico. He is not out for two seconds. And Jesse says to Gorilla, don't you love Chico's music? It reminds me of the Blue Note Club in Tijuana. And Gorilla says, "Oh, uh, I think you must have picked something up down there, huh, Jess? And he, oh, yeah, I picked something up, uh, a few things up. Let's start w- with uh, Juanita. And he starts listing girls' names, which is just amazing. Um, he also says that a, uh, if if Chico had been smart, he would have sent the Barbarian some of that food, uh, some of that food, because we could have counted on a count out in two minutes. The Barbarian would have had to leave the ring 
It would have been called Chico's Revenge. I mean, he was just laying it on here with the the puns. A uh, hey, gorilla, ever eat one of Chico's enchiladas? You're not normal for a week. <laughs> gorilla said the the food. Uh, he likes that food, but it doesn't like him back. I mean, to me, that's what stood out about this. This was four minutes. They're trying to build up the barbarian as a, a new heel, a new new member of the the Heenan family. He at one point was a. Uh, a contender for the WCW Heavyweight Championship I believe against Ron Simmons Like not, not too long after this like uh, Just about a year and a half, two years And um, this was You know, Tito's good in the ring He's always going to do a pretty good job With what he has, this is four minutes He gets a little bit of offense It's not like a complete squash Tito does does get a lot in this match But the point of it is to kind of show That the Barbarian is this new big Up and coming guy and um, <laughs> my final favorite line that I have to say before I hand it off to Darren uh, Gorilla says, Tito can knock you out with a flying forearm And Jesse says, a burrito too <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know if they were all off the cuff Or if he just had like a paper <laughs> just, just like, and you could, as he says them, just starts crossing them off You know, got that one, Juanita got that one there's the burrito line. Uh, how many Chicos? Three, four? I got to get up this one. Throw another one here. I mean, he just unleashes. And again, it's more stuff that you could never do today. You know, oh, no but it, you know, you could never do it today. <laughs> then, you know, but yeah, you touched on all that. Um, the w- one thing that I took away from this match. So this is really just about a month or two after they split up uh, Powers of Pain. Mm-hmm. They did a whole where Fuji said that they sold the contracts and so on and so forth. Now, the weird thing about this was after this match, I thought they had positioned Barbarian to get a real push. I agree. Uh, you know, big, look, good-looking guy. And then he kind of doesn't do anything. Like, I don't remember him doing much of anything throughout 1990. I know in Survivor Series, later on, he actually ends up in a big spot. He ends up on the team against... You know, the Hulkamaniacs, uh, you know, in a big spot in Survivor Series. Uh, and then, you know, he has a match against the big boss man at Royal Rumble 91 that, that he loses. Um, and, and he kind of just, you know, that's it. I mean, so that's the singles career for the Barbarian never really amounts to much. I did see him a couple of times in house shows. Um, and uh, he, he would win against, you know, small guys or I don't even remember who he wrestled. He wasn't even putting over like, you know, faces at that time. So he was getting a house show push. And the only thing I could think of is that the reaction at the house show was just lukewarm. And maybe they balked at the idea of pushing him. But um yeah, and that's the I, I take the one thing I take away from this match is he set up to go on a push, gets the you know annual win over Tito at uh, at WrestleMania, uh delivers a vicious clothesline off the top rope for the finisher where Tito does a great sell, flips over on his neck. And then this is kind of it from here for the Barbarian for a while. The Barbarian stuck around in WWF, and he was on the roster for the Royal Rumble where Flair won the title because I remember Gorilla Monsoon's terrific line that he uttered solely to tick off Bobby Heenan in this hushed, subtle, worried tone, Barbarian doesn't like Flair. so he was still there and he wound up in wcw where he was part of the dungeon of doom and ultimately part of a tag team with a guy he had tagged with before except instead of the powers of pain 
they were the faces of fear. Alliteration for you folks out there. This match was what it was. Tito Santana was a really good hand. I really hope he was in on all the stuff Gorilla. He had to have been, right? Yeah. He had to have been. But at the same time, you wonder if he watched some of the tapes back and walked up to the guys later and went, did you really have to say that? That (laughs) Just, it's so funny. But again, it's stuff you can't do now. You can't get within a toll call of that now. It's just stuff that's incomprehensible 30 years later. For its time, it was funny, and you could tell Jesse was licking his chops. And he was pumped up for the next match, too. It was like it carried on over, because it was like his two favorite were literally back-to-back, where he just got to to say everything he wanted to say. So the Barbarian gets the win, 4 minutes and 33 seconds here. Um, And then we get the the build-up to the first ever... They were they were really laying it on that it was the first ever mixed tag match. We have Dusty Rhodes and Sapphire versus uh, King Macho Macho King Randy Savage at the time, and the, the Sensational Queen Sherry. So uh, Dusty and Sapphire they cut a little promo. They talk about how they have the crown jewel. There was a surprise for this match. Nobody knew what that meant. And um, Macho, really cool entrance As we would get when he was the Macho King uh, This was like really cool Like Wrestlemania entrance Um, And and then Dusty comes down And he says that he's got a surprise And he brings out Miss Elizabeth So Miss Elizabeth Is the the surprise here But before we get to the Before we even get to that Jesse is just the same thing It's like he's waiting for Sapphire to come out And um he at one point right off the bat they announced the weights when uh, when Jesse and oh uh, god were, that was they're walking, savage they're walking down and and they announced the weight of uh, of Dusty Rhodes and and Sapphire together and he is flabbergasted that they are announced at 465 he says Sapphire is 250 by herself so what that means Dusty Rhodes 200 I mean 565 maybe I could believe this <laughs> so he is just hilarious Gorilla at one point says uh, Savage and Sherry are going to have their hands full and he says literally tons of fun <laughs> and then, uh, um, he says Sherry looks like she's wearing something from the, from Snow White and Jesse says and the other two are two of the seven dwarves um, I mean he was just loving this um, another he was Talking about how Elizabeth uh, loves the camera And then he gets He just literally says Do I really have to look at Sapphire <laughs> I mean he just like did, Hasn't Sapphire ever heard of Slim Fast I mean could you imagine Doing this like in this Day and age with like I mean he says you know this And then he starts explaining the rules You know this is the first ever mixed tag match He's explaining the rules he says you know the men can only face the men When the when there's a tag the women face the women He says which I don't really understand With all the women's empowerment stuff out there I'd love to see Macho Versus uh, <laughs> Versus Sapphire in here I mean he was These two matches like looking back Might have been two uh, of the more controversial ones because of the thing, but he was having a blast. And at the time, like we said, it's so weird because it's not like it's just cra- it's like eye opening to see how much things have changed. This isn't fifty years ago. I mean, this is thirty years ago. And um, 
I mean, we get a fun, but this is this was another like match that if we got Macho versus Dusty here for like fifteen, they could have had a, a really good match. You know, even Dusty could still go at this point in in the right match with the right person. He could. But their feud was more kind of about the story It was Miss Elizabeth And then DiBiase got involved later With the, the Sapphire stuff So this was more of, of, of the fun This wasn't what we had Kind of gotten used to with Macho um, The previous few years where he was involved in some some Really good matches and uh, uh, like some Manias kind of built around him But this this was you know WrestleMania moment to get Elizabeth out there Who actually kind of got involved We didn't see Elizabeth really get involved in matches You know like she would I remember you know she took her skirt off the one time And would would maybe distract someone But we rarely saw her actually like Use her hands or push someone And uh, she did that and that kind of Set up the victory here at 7 minutes And 52 seconds so Dusty Rhodes And Sapphire get the win And they're able to celebrate with uh, With Miss Elizabeth afterwards so yeah, this is one of those matches where if I look at it from a 2020 booking standpoint, I have problems with it. Um, you know, because I again, when you take a look at this card, the weird booking of Perfect and Beefcake, having Bret Hart wrestle for 19 seconds, and now you have your other big talent in a mixed tag match. Um, so I look at this and say, why couldn't this be Savage versus Dusty? With, you know, Sapphire and uh, and Elizabeth comes out at some point, you know, and, and Sherry's outside. And, and But you, when you watch the match, the crowd is into the whole mixed tag element of the match. And they do keep doing the whole, you know, Savage bumping into Sherry thing and Sherry bumping into Savage thing. And it works. And the crowd's into it. And I get it. But me looking back on the match selfishly, I would have preferred to have just seen... Savage and Dusty because I don't need to see Sapphire bounce around and do a You know butt check to Sherry's face And bounce around and do a butt Check to her face and then you know Try to do some kind of a flip Where she ends up like literally Gently placing her on the canvas Because you know Sapphire really Can't do anything in the ring Um, You know it's fun I get it but me being the Traditional wrestling I want to see Savage work a Savage Wrestlemania match this left me feeling like I wanted a bit more. You know, I came into this thinking I was going to be the one to have the novel idea. Why couldn't we just have Savage against Dusty? That would have been great. And both of you <laughs> beat me to it. You jerks. Anyway, for its time, it was fine. I get where they were going. And to her undying credit, Sherry Martell bumped like a mad woman for Sapphire yep. trying to get her over every butt check Sherry is selling that like she just got hit by a tank she tried the problem was they make a big deal at the start of the match talking about the rules of a mixed tag match they go out the window halfway through they it's count a pin it's they count you, a cover when she covers Dusty. They count Sherry counts. Like, why yeah. is the ref counting? <laughs> it's as if the referee just gave up and said, eh, do whatever you want, you know, whatever. And that just it didn't land for me. No, now I agree. Dusty being what he was as a worker at that point, it's arguable how much Savage was going to be able to get out of him. But if anyone was going to get Dusty to channel early to mid-80s Dusty in a big spot, 
it was going to be Randy Savage. Those two could have put together a really good one-on-one match with Sherry on one side, Sapphire on the outside, and oh, look, there's Elizabeth coming up the ramp. Savage gets distracted. Dusty hits the elbow. Dusty wins. Everybody's, you know, all happy. Savage doesn't lose anything. It winds up being a situation where Sherry's the one that has to take the pinfall. Yes, Elizabeth gets involved. It's a cool moment. It's not a terrible match. It just could have been so much better. And the other visual I remember is Elizabeth dancing with Dusty and Sapphire afterwards. And it looks like she has two left feet. I know, right? She just was not, um, she was not, she never looked comfortable. Right? She looked uncomfortable a lot of the time when she was in there. Which if, if and and early on that's like the role she was supposed to play, you know, kind of shy and unassuming as Macho was more heelish and he, you know, but she just never really took it and ran. Even when like late, unfortunately, what happened to her later in her life and what and when she was in WCW and they kind of turned her like into this like trashy character, yeah. she she just still didn't seem comfortable. Like she always seemed like she was was acting and kind of putting it on, which is you know it's funny because we just didn't we weren't used there were there were no women and she was such a big part of them. But it, when you look back and like dissect all the segments and all the time she's on the screen, she's definitely not like she's gorgeous and she was such a big part of the whole thing. But she's definitely not charismatic, uh, you know, in, in the least. Um, but yeah, <laughs> the awkward dancing to close things out, and uh, and then basically this was when. They they had intermission, so we get this like stream of promos. First, it's Mean Gene talking to Bobby. He said it. He almost said, you know, at one point he he kind of caught himself again. He had like a running joke. He was gonna say something with Bobby, then he kind of stopped himself. And Bobby looked up at him, and uh, they were having fun all throughout the night. And then um, uh, they did a backstage segment with Gorilla and Jesse talking to that Rona Barrett, the gossip columnist. She kind of mentioned that uh. I think because Jesse had kind of talked trash on her earlier in the show, she said something about she had a like some kind of a footage with like alluding that Jesse was in some kind of a porno. <laughs> um, and then we get Sean Mooney talking to Savage and Sherry. They are just screaming like crazy, which was really funny. They were going absolutely ballistic. And uh, and then we get Mean Gene talking to Demolition. They mentioned the Heart Foundation kind of set up their next one. So before we get to the the next the two big promos after that, um, any of these things that uh, that you kind of like, dislike, or were funny that stuck out stood out to you, Darren? Um, I mean, you know, Sherry throwing her temper tantrum is always funny. Um, you know, she looks like she's having convulsions. Um, you know, I thought the Demolition program, you know, did its job. Uh, you know, I mean, the pro, the promo that, that they did, you know, in terms of what they were doing and what they were setting up for the future. Um, then you have the Warrior promo, which is just, you know, after Hogan. I mean, you know, one of the epic Warrior promos where 10 seconds in, you have no idea what the hell he's talking about. You know, it's just he, he just starts rambling and going on. And, you know, me, I'm looking at him. And he looks like he's like, you know fresh out of an 80s rock, you know, video with the big blown out hair. Don't really care what he's saying. You know, juiced out of his mind. The tassels have never been tighter. You know, clenching his hands together like almost in prayer and, you know, doing his thing with the the Hulkamaniacs and the Warriors. You know, it's just like, what, like what is going on? But 
you know, it, it's what Warrior is supposed to be. Uh, and it takes us, you know, to the point, the second half of the show, where at this point we're getting close to the main event. And as a little kid, you know, I'm starting to, you know, climb out of my skin, hoping that it's Warrior's Day. So for me, the little kid, the promo did the job. If, it, if I was 35 years old watching that, I'll probably think to myself, oh, my God, what the hell is this? <laughs> I, I have two notes. Uh, one of them alludes back to something that we talked about earlier. But the first is, can we discuss Sean Mooney's mullet? <laughs> I mean, this was 1990. So we're several years past the peak of the mullet. I would argue the mullet peaked 85, 86, 87. Yeah, that's fair. We're, that's we're fair. several years past that. But Sean Mooney is a mullet loyalist. And if you look at this, it's it's magical how this guy's head of hair looked the way that it did on a big stage with him trying to look incredibly formal as the backstage interviewer type. And then you look at his hair and it's whoop. I mean, my goodness, it's no wonder this guy got a run on the Edge and Christian show where they were pretty much vociferously making fun of him and all of his tendencies. It's just the guy was a walking punchline at this point, and some of it he brought on himself. But on a more serious note, I thought about bringing this up earlier. I figured I'd bring it up now. Gino, you'd mentioned Hogan's promo here sounding a lot Mm -hmm. like Warrior's promo on the Raw right before he passed away. I firmly believe Warrior gave that promo knowing he was going to die. So I I, I don't know if it was channeling that or channeling something else, or if it was just Warrior getting a microphone and having no idea what he was going to say. (laughs) Having said that, when I was listening to Hogan's thing, it did take me back to Warrior's promo on Raw a couple of years ago, right before he passed away. And you're right, the similarities are eerie. And you look at what happened with Hogan after this. This was supposed to be where Hogan was, I don't want to say phased out, but he wasn't the almighty top guy anymore. Mm -hmm. They were trying to create other guys. There were rumblings that Hogan was going to Hollywood full time. He said he had a whole bunch of gigs lined up. Of course, a year later, he's back winning the world title again. So we all know how that wound up. But it's weird And the more you listen to these promos, the more you go down into a rabbit hole trying to figure out what the heck are these people saying? And the moment you start rationalizing why they make sense, you need to shut your TV off. (laughs) Just trust me on this. This, um, the Hogan promo, which comes in, and two, um, you, it's so funny. You know, if you didn't know he was going to lose, you knew he was going to lose when you heard this promo. When when did you ever hear Hulk Hogan say something? And he he spinned it okay at the end, but when did you ever say some hear him say something that like it doesn't matter when you win or you lose. The only thing that matters is what kind of a winner you are or what kind of a loser you are. Which was which was actually a lot of the story of the main event match at the end. And you know, Gorilla even has his line after you know immortality. And we saw Hogan. We we talk about you know. With uh, with Brett getting Austin over, this might have been one of the greatest things that Hogan did, like firmly supplanting Warrior for a little while, like on the level with him. But it's weird knowing that he's gonna lose. It's like you heard that promo, and it's like he's gonna lose. You know, you could just you could just tell he whether I don't not knowing how Hogan felt about it at the time. You know, who knows? But he it's not like he did he 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 did his part beautifully, like as well as he possibly could. And then we get the the Warrior promo, which. 
This is my all-time favorite Warrior promo. I think yeah. because when we talk about the Warrior promos overall, they're all for the most part pretty gibberish. But the the first like half of this one is actually like a pretty good like rebuttal to Hogan and and in pretty kind of like focused. I don't recall him rare like rarely cutting promos on the individuals that he was going to wrestle. It was more like he would cut a promo on, "Oh, the Warriors are following me, and here we come." You know that that kind of a thing. This was actually what I liked. He was like he was putting over Hogan in the promo and saying that you know what, like, is it am I you know am I stronger? Are you stronger? He's going with all this weird you know way that he's that he's kind of like comparing it. But it it was it's my favorite one of, of his because he was on all night t- this night and he. You know, when you watch him work in the ring in that in that main event match, when we get there, the one thing that I not got mad at, but I was like, "Damn!" Like he he had this, he had a little more in him than I don't know what it was. He maybe he just didn't want to do it, or a lot of it wasn't his character or whatever it was. But like he he had some nice clean suplexes. Like there was a little more that he could have busted out in his repertoire on a day to day basis that we didn't really see from him. And I was just really impressed with him on the again. You know, this was his night. And he nailed it. I mean, he hit a grand slam. This was like that night built around the warrior. And from this promo, which you know ends up, and then he kind of goes off the deep end a little towards the end. But, but I like it. It was more like you know his legacy, talking about the legacy and the beliefs of you know what what's going to happen to you, Hogan. What do you want your legacy to be? What a which you know was was a, a, a lot for for the warrior at this point. Um, then we get into I quote unquote the second half of the show, and this next match was was good. Right, it's solid. Like the Rockers, pretty much anything the Rockers at this time period is going to be super innovative. You you see why everybody was really high on Sean and Marty's super good at this point. But the only thing that leaves a weird taste in my mouth with this match is that we get a much better version of this match at the '91 Royal Rumble, where we get the Orient Express versus the Rockers, and that match is like a steal the show kind of match. That is like one of those you know hidden classics that people talk about. There's nothing wrong with this match whatsoever. I'm just you know bummed because I know that they can get better, and they do. You know, maybe it's after working with each other for a while because Shawn Michaels had a lot of history with these guys. Yeah, no, he did. There's no question about it. And if you know the story of, of the Rockers and how they came up, we've talked about it before. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I agree. I mean, looking, but you know, it was fun. There was a couple of really cool bumps. Uh, Sean, de- Sean delivered one clothesline. The guy uh, did a 360 in midair. Um, you know, there were some cool spots. But again, you know, these are guys that you would have wanted more than a mm-hmm. six-minute You know what I mean? Um, I mean, these are guys that, you know, they could have gone out there for 15, 16, 18 minutes. And and really, you know, lit lit the the match up. I mean, it it went about seven and a half, and you know, Shawn Michaels is just getting warmed up at seven and a half minutes. Um, so yeah, I would have liked to have seen a little more from it as well. Um, you know, the Fuji involvement and how it ends. Okay, you know, whatever. Uh, there's a couple of cool spots. The double back body drop was a cool spot as well. Um, yeah, but I I view it the same way you did. Um, and again, I I still come away from this. Thinking that I would have wanted to see the Rockers and the Heart Foundation in an epic match here, but um, stay lobby. This match was a victim of a couple of things to me. For one, it was right after intermission, so they had to get the crowd fired up again. So right mm-hmm. away, they're playing from behind. What I didn't like, right from the rip, 
you hear the Rockers theme music. You're expecting these two energetic guys. If anyone on the roster shouldn't have been using the carts, it was those guys. Yep. Because they're just standing there as their music plays, trying to hype up the crowd. You don't need the cart for those guys. These guys are supposed to be the two young, energetic guys firing up the kids. I mean, you didn't need the cart. And to me, that just seemed like overbooking. The match wasn't bad, but it seemed like everyone was going into second gear, and I hated the finish. Janetti gets counted out. We couldn't yep. get a legitimate clean finish one way or the other here in a way that wouldn't have hurt either team. Come on, guys. This isn't hard. I don't understand the need to have that kind of a finish at WrestleMania for what is essentially a second opening match. You've they got were just trying to that, protect everyone on this show. You've you know what I mean? A crowd that wants to cheer these it things. Was... Like, are you really trying to protect the Orient freaking Express? Like, give the Rockers a win in that eight minutes. Have them win clean. Do one of their finishers off the top rope that the Young Bucks still use as transition moves in every match today. And that's how you fire up a crowd. But to me, this was a victim of bad placement on the show, and it got worse from there. So, uh, poor Greg Valentine uh, coming up after this. Poor Greg Greg Valentine. This is the peak of his career. Greg Valentine, who, you know, was always a solid worker. Intercontinental champion. He he had some good, you know, his 80s into the beginning part of the 90s. Very, very good run in the WWF. Did some good work before that. But, wow. I mean, he is placed now in a tag team with the Honky Tonk Man. They are called Rhythm and Blues. He has black hair at the moment. And he's playing a guitar. And it's funny, when I was talking with Jason Beam about this the other day, we were talking about WrestleMania 4, and he said the, the, the best part about Honky and was that he could never just learn one or two chords. You would have thought that with, you know, like, just like Elias, or like, you know, just to be able to play a chord or two, that was what made it even better, that Honky was so awful and had, he just couldn't even, like, like convincingly hold that guitar like someone who would play it. And and poor uh, Greg Valentine was just miserable, miserable in this role. Steve Allen was funny, though. He uh, Their, their song is Hunk a Hunk of Burning Love. He says something like, um, we have one of the hottest bands. Uh, we're going to catch up with one of the hottest bands in the world, but they're not here. So we have these guys instead. And um, he, when uh, Honky asks him if he's excited to hear their song, he said, he hasn't been this excited since he found out that Pee Wee Herman was straight. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> this was just, uh, I mean, we're going to see them in a minute. And we'll talk about that when they come out in the ring, Rhythm and Blues. Up next, we got... Hacksaw Jim Duggan versus Dino Bravo with Jimmy Hart and Earthquake. And right away, Gorilla has to let us know that Earthquake shouldn't be out there because he cannot have a manager's license and a wrestler's license simultaneously, Darren. <laughs> oh, the controversy. You know, oh, I mean, you know. Somebody, somebody get somebody out here to get rid of this guy. Um, I'm just saying it's earthquake. That's the that's the ability that he has look, to be able to big guy, <laughs> big guy that can move. Oh, big guy that can move. Mark um, off your Gino Bingo cards right here. Uh, look, I don't, I don't want to be too hard on anybody. This match is four minutes and fifteen seconds. It's four minutes and fourteen seconds too long. Yep. Uh, you know it's. I mean, we know what Duggan can't do in a ring. 
Dino Bravo is well past his prime. Um, you know, and by the way, if you, I mean, Dino, his wrestling style always has kind of been as this big bruiser. But if you do watch his stuff from Canada in the late 70s and early 80s, it's pretty good. Um, you know, the, the Dino Bravo that you get in the late 80s into the early 90s in the WWE is not the Dino Bravo that you'll see from, you know, 10, 12 years earlier. But, the I mean, the moves are so slow, methodical, stiff. Telegraphed, I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's just awful. And I feel bad saying that. Uh, and, you know, the fact that Dino Bravo loses to Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, you know, it's just wild to me, but, um, yeah, I mean, that's just, that, that's really all I could say about it. I wish I had a positive note about the match, but, you know, I mean, there is a big guy that can move on the outside. So there's that. <laughs> Here's what I found hilarious. And this became a running gag. Hacksaw tries to get a USA. Thank you. Going. I'm so glad you mentioned this. In Toronto. <laughs> and he's, the best is that. Dino Bravo is booked as the Canadian strongman, and Earthquake was initially initially the Canadian Earthquake. The dynamic was just completely bass backwards, is what they said. Yeah. I mean, it was... now the one thing that I will say about this match is I liked the finish. They bring the two by four in. Bravo is going to use it, except he winds up hoisted on his own petard. And Hacksaw Jim Duggan uses the two by four, whacks Bravo over the head and winds up getting the win. At the very least, they ended with some clever storytelling. Before that, the match was terrible. But at the very least, this match had what a lot of matches on this show didn't have. It had a decent finish. And then uh, Duggan would get kind of set up. This was this was again kind of building Earthquake. You know, this was even more about building Earthquake than it was this match because uh, D- Duggan and Earthquake would have a little bit of a feud before Earthquake went on to uh, to hook up with Hogan. Uh, then we get Mean Gene talking to Jake. Oh, this was oh, this great. was so great. This is so good. Oh, this promo is so great. Jake the Snake's backstage. He cuts his promo. And he's talking about, you know, all the things that the Million Dollar Man has done through the years, how he's embarrassed people and um, how he's made people do things for money. And, you know, he he says he's going to humble him. He calls him a victim of his own greed. Um, He says, you know, this is the most important match of your career because your money, your belt is on the line. I mean, this was like one of those goosebumps promos. And it's not the longest thing in the world, you know, make a minute and a half, not even two minutes. But he like... He just sets in in the two minutes. He sets everything up for all the like. Oh, okay. This is what you're gonna do. This is why you're gonna do. I mean, this was awesome. Love this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just it's just typical Jake promo. I mean, it's you know this is what you get from him. I mean, his delivery, uh, his speaking tone. Um, you know, it just sends chills down your spine when he does these things, um, and. I mean, we talked about it before, and looking back on it, there were never more over guys than Jake. I mean, wherever okay. he went, I mean, they loved him, and and rightfully so. A good worker, great on the microphone, amazing presence, phenomenal character, you know, bringing the snake to the ring. I mean, it all just worked. And, you know, the weird thing about Jake is, he never he's never given a belt no. but he's one of those characters that really doesn't need the belt um 
he's better as a chaser. He's better as the guy lurking in the weeds. He's the boogeyman who's going to get you late at night. Um, and and that's what this entire Jake, you know, thing is about going into this match with DiBiase. Um, yeah. You know, and it was kind of looking back on it, you couldn't really, I mean, you know, you couldn't really put a million dollar belt on Jake the Snake. Yep. And that's where they were handcuffed a little bit. Yeah. yeah. It, you couldn't really do it. But at the same time, you don't want him to lose, you know. So they almost painted themselves into a corner. The booking from that standpoint is a little bit weird. I, I do love the ending where Jake, you know, starts to pick up the money, hands it to the people outside and everything. Um, but, yeah, I do think they kind of painted themselves into a corner with that because the whole million-dollar belt on Jake doesn't work and, you know, Virgil takes off with the belt and everything. But it's a good match. You get the DDT at the end. You get the big pop from the DDT. By the way, one thing I never mentioned with Jake, and this is my last thing, and this is just a random thing. Don't ask me why, but for some reason, I loved his short arm clothesline. Oh, it's amazing. That, oh, it's that, so great. It's such a simple move, and it's one of the things that Andrew says. You know, you don't have to overcomplicate things. That short arm clothesline, when he would wind that up and whip it in and hit it, was one of my favorite moves that I loved all the time. And, you know, he delivered it, you know, tremendously every time, but – I mean, I like the match. I, the finish has to be what it has to be. But, you know, Jake goes over, gets the big pop. Million Dollar Man's left laying in the ring. Jake's handed out the money. It's what we needed it to be because you couldn't put the, that belt on Jake. Couple of notes here. Uh, if this promo sounds familiar to any of you out there and you're trying to place it, chances are you saw this promo in Beyond the Mat. Yeah. This was the Jake promo that they chose above everything else that he did with wow. the World Wrestling Federation in that initial run. And there's a reason for that. As Gene Okerlund said, Longfellow couldn't have said it any better. And you could tell he was taken aback by what Jake said. He didn't have to do anything. Jake did all the legwork for him. That's the easiest money Gene Okerlund ever made in his life. Now, the match. Darren, you mentioned it. They booked themselves into a corner. I didn't like this match as much as you guys did. Well, I, I don't really love the match either. It's it's a little slow, you know. Like I don't. I, and and that's what what was frustrating. And and I've and I've noticed this with the, some of these rewatches as of late. The guys that have I disappointed me a little, and I know it was more about their character, and it's and it's because I know they can go. Or are Jake and Rude when I've rewatched them more because we just rewatched WrestleMania four where they have that fifteen minute draw, which is literally like six minutes, seven minutes of being in an arm bar, you know, and we're it, it's similar here where there's not a lot till till the end. And it, this does go, you know, 11 minutes and fifty seconds. It was just like I know these guys could could go a little bit quicker, faster. It just must have been, you know, let let's set this up. I, I I was a little more disappointed with it too because I was expecting more like especially coming off that promo it got me really pumped for the match and I love both of these guys overall but it didn't you know this was like a single to me it didn't really get more than that yeah and after that promo you're expecting something incredibly hot Jake hits the DDT at some point whatever instead you get a lot of rest holds you get the crowd doing the wave now thirty years later. If a crowd does the wave at a WWE right. event, it is death. 
I know this because I was at the Raw after WrestleMania in San Jose when we all did the wave during the six-man tag match in the main event that had Roman Reigns and Ryback as part of the winning team. Now, the other thing that we get, and this is one of those Jesse and Gorilla things, we get references to hot dogs. Oh, yeah. Apparently, Gorilla Monsoon ate a hot dog during intermission, and Jesse did not let Gorilla live it down. It is so good, and you can hear Gorilla Monsoon having to refrain from busting up laughing as they're going back and forth with DiBiase and Jake in rest hold after rest hold after rest hold. To me, that was entertaining. Yes. However, running gag alert, did you notice the money that Jake handed out after the match? What money was it? American money. It was American money <laughs> in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. My goodness. At the very least, go find some $20 Canadian bills and give those out. This isn't hard. These poor people. I don't know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what Canadian money looked like in 1990, but Canadian money right now is awesome. I love it. It's yeah. fantastic. Oh. It's like it's like it's like Picasso, you know, painted a portrait and put a hologram in it. I mean, Canadian money is so much cooler than American money. It's not even close. I think the, the 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 moment it was that uh, Andrew was when the crowd was doing the wave and Jesse said, uh, "Oh, gorilla, it's coming right back at us." Oh, he says, "Gorilla couldn't stand up because he had too many of the hot dogs. <laughs> he couldn't even stand up for the wave." So he was getting him all throughout the show with the, that hot dog gag, which is just hilarious. I think you had seven of them, gorilla. Um, we, we then get to uh, you know the the post match with you know Jake celebrating, which. You know, again, it's like it's a bummer because if there's no belt here, I guarantee you Jake just gets a clean win because yeah. because that's what he he gets it back afterwards. He gets over on DiBiase. He puts the money in his mouth. He gets the snake out. And then, you know, Virgil comes back and gets him. So he's like everything that we want for the baby face to get his, you know, his pop at the end. But they just didn't want to give him that belt at the time. Um, and, and then we do uh, we get to. The slick promo with uh, Akeem. And I did kind of like what they did here. Million Dollar Man had this thing going with Big Boss Man where he was trying to buy the Big Boss Man's contract. He refused. So the Big Boss Man turned from heel to a face. And DiBiase was still out um, ringside when this match starts. And he actually attacks Big Boss Man prior to the match. Um, it's kind of a little something different that you don't see. It made sense to put these two matches like right next to each other because there was some overlapping storyline in here. And I mean, that was that's really the only positive I have to say. Akeem, at this point especially, could not do a whole heck of a lot. He was fine in some of his early one man gang um, days. And, you know, the, the Twin Towers, Hogan, you know, Savage stuff, there was some okay stuff there. Uh, Boss Man was definitely the better of the workers, though. And this was giving Boss Man a big push. So, Andrew, big man that can work. We got a couple, but uh, um, just one I've of them that can some, work. I got something else before we go in too much further. Okay. Um, the dueling promos. What's Big Boss Man's last line? He says he's proud to be an American. In, in Canada. Toronto! It's just amazing. I know. Repeatedly. Did they repeatedly. think this was in New Jersey? I know. And it's like the fans just kind of are like, with the hacksaw one is great because that was like the fans are like, what the hell are we supposed to do here? You know, like we're not. It was so weird. Yeah, and it wasn't a bad promo other than that. But 
it was very clear that the big boss man had rehearsed about 50 seconds of a one minute promo and he needed to fill the last 10 seconds with something. And he winds up filling it with that in Toronto. Now the match itself, it's nothing to write home about the angle with DiBiase is pretty cool because he outsmarts people by staying by ringside and jumping boss man, throwing him in the ring. Boss man winds up rallying, hits the boss man slam on the big, huge Akeem. Crowd gets a nice pop. Bossman's theme music, by the way, after a couple of WrestleManias, starting to grow on me. Yeah, I like tell it. You. Yeah. It's a good tune. Yeah, this wasn't much, uh, Darren. Just super squashy. Um, and and, and Bossman was kind of a fun, like, you know, mid-card babyface character after this. He had a good little run for a couple years. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things with Akeem, a character that I never understood. You know, I mean, uh, I think he wore uh, this kind of blue outfit with the African continent on his back. And, I mean, is he supposed to be South African? Because he's, you know, he's not an African-American. So I never got that part of the character. He's doing like the crazy hand jive gestures. Wasn't the, the, the rumor that it was supposed to be a rib on Dusty? Yes. That's before exactly Dusty what came was. over. Um, and it was like he's doing the Dusty dance and how Dusty kind of talks like he's uh, like an African-American, like talks in that kind yeah, of, uh, you know. So I think, I think there was like a running inside joke on that um, as far as some of the, at least the story that I had heard. Gotcha. Well, yeah. So, I mean, they split up the Twin Towers before this, the whole thing you talked about, buying the contract, uh, boss man, you know, gets aggravated with Slick for taking credit for everything, turns on everybody, you get this match. This is, I think, the last pay-per-view match you get for the one-man gang slash Akeem. He actually shows up at WCW the following year as the one-man gang and attacks yep. Ron Simmons, I believe. He gets, um, a, like, a main event push, too. Like, he's in a title match, I think, at one point, whether it's with Flair or someone, you know, like, someone, yeah. Yeah, so he goes back to WCW and then, you know, stays there, shows back up again years later, and he has, like, a run, and then he starts doing the independent stuff again. Um, but, I mean, he was pretty well done here. But, yeah, this is the start of Boss Man, you know, getting the big push. Gets a big win here, going to move forward. He has some, you know, big matches coming up in the not-too-distant future. They turn him face. And he's also one of those guys that doesn't get a belt as a singles wrestler, but he's super over. He's the Brutus, you know, you know the Brutus, like, yep. ca- category. I'd argue he should have been the Intercontinental Champion at WrestleMania Seven. I think yeah. that should have been his moment. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And by the way, to Andrew's point, SummerSlam 91, and, then, and again, there were some monstrous pops there when Brett won, when LOD won. But one of the biggest pops of the night was when Big Boss Man beat the Mountie, and the Mountie went off to the slammer. That was a, um, yeah, that was a great feud, yeah. too. That was fun. Great. Yeah, so... I mean, a huge over guy. I used to love his punches, those quick jabs. How, I mean, they always look like they caught flush. And I will give you this. Big Boss Man was a big guy that could move that I like. <laughs> we need to turn this into a drinking game for college students. I feel <laughs> right, like some of do. them wouldn't last throughout an entire no. WrestleMania review. If there you're out be... there and you want to take us up on the challenge, our Twitter DMs are open. There we go. That, yeah, we got we to gotta figure something out for that for sure. Uh, we get to poor Mary Tyler Moore. So, you know, Sean Moody's in the crowd. He's interviewing and people. And so is his mullet. Sean Moody's mullet is in the crowd. 
the kid that he interviews, the first kid, is hilarious. He asks the kid about rhythm and blues and their big single, and the kid is like, they stink. They can't do anything. I mean, the kid is just hilarious. He's got a big, like, big personality, you could tell right away. Um, and then they get to poor Mary Tyler Moore. And, and the first question... Or two, they ask her, she's completely fine That's it, like you got what you needed Mary Tyler Moore's here, how do you like it Mary Tyler You know, and she's like, oh this is great It's the the perfect combination of like Athleticism and theater We love it, um, oh hey we're gonna be in LA Next year, do we expect to see you? Of course, count me in, I'm there, like boom, that's it And then he just kept going on He wanted to ask about rhythm and blue And he's asking her questions about the Honky Tonk Man And she has no idea who the hell the Honky Tonk Man Or Greg Valentine Or what hunka hunka burning love are Poor girl, I mean, she's just sitting there like Uh, 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 uh It was bad Yeah Yeah, it's, uh I'm with you, I mean, I don't really know what to say about it I I watched this back and I'm just, I, it's almost like I feel uncomfortable watching it because especially because of Valentine, you know, I mean, honky tonk is only two years removed from his big intercontinental championship run. And these guys are just kind of like the joke of the day. You know, you get run out of the ring by the bushwhackers at WrestleMania. I mean, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where it just leaves me flat. Um, I, I, you know, I think it took what, I think it took Luke about three times to smash the guitar uh, before it actually broke. And, you know, I mean, everybody reacts to the Bushwhackers. The Bush, see, I'm a weird guy. I'm not into dumb comedy. Like, I'm, I I can't, you know, some Will Ferrell movies I'll get and I'll like, but the real stupid ones, it's just not my shit. The Bushwhackers were just never my thing, you know. And even as a kid, I was not the kid walking around doing the, the Bushwhacker walk and, yeah, so, so you mean in the like, in the coronavirus world, you wouldn't want to get licked in the head by one of the bushwhackers? Oh, <laughs> even, even in a pre-coronavirus world, no. <laughs> yeah, it's just it just wasn't my thing. And this was, I, to be honest with you, I when this spot came on, um, I went downstairs and made myself a cup of tea and didn't even pause it on the WWE network. Okay, you know you're in trouble. When the guy who had the best career out of anybody in this segment is the guy driving the Cadillac. Yep. For those of you who do not know, yes, Diamond Dallas Page got this job because he had a pink Cadillac and would drive it to Toronto. That is how you get on WrestleMania, kids. (laughs) Now, I don't know who this segment was booked to please. Probably Vince. I, I don't understand the appeal. Honky Tonk Man was doing his usual shtick. The one time I did laugh was when the backup singers were fawning over Honky Tonk Man, and then Honky Tonk turns to Jimmy Hart, and Jimmy Hart tries to turn it into a contest as to who can fawn over the Honky Tonk Man the most. That part, I chuckle that. But my goodness, this was a six, seven-minute segment, and I'm just looking at my watch wondering, okay, so there's about 45 minutes left in the show, when do we get to Hogan? Wait, wait a minute. You're telling me there's several more matches before we even get to Hogan and Warrior? Come on! This was, yeah, this was awful. This is gonna gonna go down as one of the worst segments in WrestleMania history. I mean, it's it's bad. It's really bad. And you just kind of can giggle a little bit and laugh. And I just, I feel so bad for Valentine. I don't want to spend any more time talking about that one. Um, we get the uh, announcement 67,678, which at the time was a record there. 
Um, and then uh, Steve Allen joins us for commentary for the Rick Rude Jimmy Snuka match. He was he was pretty funny in here. Um, uh, Steve Allen he made a comment at one point that like Snuka was wearing his wife's underwear, <laughs> which I, I got to laugh at. And uh, he he was um, definitely someone who was like you know self deprecating and was taking shots at wrestling, but. It's funny, it was fine This was a quick match It's to build up Rude because he's going to be uh, Facing the Warrior in the main event at SummerSlam uh, Coming up later this year And he's going to have a uh, a good little run with Warrior And um, I, one thing I did like Was I did like Snuka doing the ravishing dance But this is weird to watch a match like this With like all the, the stuff that's out there about Snuka And um, you know Unfortunately Rude's passed away now And you have Heenan there too So it's just like Some of these matches I get sad when I watch when I watch back I just I didn't looking back, I definitely expected more out of Rude in spots than I got from him in the WWF. Now he had some moments and he had some good stuff with the Warrior for the most part, but I think a lot of his best work was in WCW as far as like match quality. A lot of it's just so damn slow. And it's like rest hold, like we were just saying with Jake, slow, like nothing great. He he did, he had the fun tights on and he does his 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 shtick. He's a good heel, but I just the, the matches are just eh. I, I agree. Um, you know, I, and on, on the Snuka stuff, I it's the to be honest with you, it was one of the only things I could think about watching the match because we just saw the uh, the Viceland documentary a week and a half ago. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I knew the backstory to it, and I knew you know what had gone on in terms of just the headline. I didn't know the actual story of it. And so it's kind of disturbing to watch Snooker now knowing what we know. Um, now, that being said, I agree with you about the match. Uh, I agree with you about, about Rude. And, and a part of the, the thought process that I have uh, is that I think it's the booking. Yeah. You know, he's, he's put in feuds with Warrior when Warrior is both Intercontinental Champion and WWE champion, you know, Rude is a guy that could work, can do some high flying stuff, can move around. He's quick, you know. He's while he's cut up and he and he's jacked, he's also very agile. He could take good looking bumps, and you know, he's while the feud with Warrior was good, he's just that's just not the guy that's going to give him the best matches. And when he goes to WCW after this, uh, and keep in mind, he also had a bit of a stint in in uh, in all Japan. You know, he ends up, you know, he's in the Dangerous Alliance. Uh, he has a big feud with Steamboat. You know, he's he's put in he's put in matches, I think, that just work better for him. And and I think that's what it comes down to. And I and I agree with you. I enjoyed his work in WCW more than WWE. It's a different kind of work. Now, mm-hmm. the thing that Rude had going for him that proved to be both a blessing and a curse is they discovered he and the Ultimate Warrior had this freakishly good chemistry, yep. which was awe-striking in large part because, depending on who you believe, those two did not like one another. Mm-hmm. There's stories of backstage fights where Rick Rude, a legit tough guy, was knocking Warrior out in one Well, and time. I think Hogan didn't like him either. So, you know what, Think like talking this out now with both, that may be why he... He didn't like it or he didn't really succeed a, a whole lot at this era. I mean, if you're not, you know, in it, quote unquote, in bed with Hogan and Warrior, you're probably not going to be in great shape. Yeah. And he had his spot where he 
did a lot of really cool things. The stuff with Jake Roberts' wife on his tights, that's classic yeah, heel awesome. work right there. That's stuff that if MJF did it tomorrow, everybody on the internet would be talking about it. And to be yeah. honest, I wouldn't be shocked if somebody who's feuding with Cody Rhodes does that with Brandy as a throwback because it would still work. But Rick Rude was a guy who, at least in WWF, didn't really get his fair shake as a worker. Mm-hmm. He, they realized that he had a lot of talent. They realized they could put him with pretty much anybody, but he wasn't all that big, and that hurt him a little bit. And also, for a little while, he was over enough to be the guy that didn't need the title. He was sort of the heel version of a guy like Boss Man or a guy like Beefcake, just yeah. an upper mid-card guy that was there that you could plug and play with pretty much anybody. Now, he went to WCW and arguably became the best worker on the roster, not named Ric Flair. Now, that's pretty darn cool for everything that he wound up doing there. He worked with Sting. He worked with Steamboat. Really good stuff. And a different kind of worker showed up. You can tell that he was trying to do something different than what got him to the dance. Unfortunately, he passed away as rumor was he was attempting to train for a return to the ring in the late 1990s alongside Kurt Hennig at WCW. Uh, that's incredibly unfortunate. He was very young at the time. I think he was only in his early four number of years where he could have come back had his health cooperated. But in this spot, it's your basic squash match trying to make Rick rude. And I'll agree, watching Jimmy Snooker now, it's weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, then we get the big one. And uh, we get the set, the setup for uh, the Ultimate Warrior versus Hulk Hogan. And uh, we get the intros. Warrior runs down to the, the ring. And the one thing that I noticed, you know, like, generally you get matches nowadays where if it's like babyface, babyface, like the crowd kind of picks, right? Like who, uh, one of the two. Man, this crowd was definitely like there were no any a lot of boot, you know, boot like I mean they were hot for both guys. That's what was really cool about this match is that it really was like the the one and one A or like one A and one B at the time as far as like fan favorites. People just loved the warrior at this point. I mean, he was hot. And I don't think these guys and by say I don't think, I sure as hell know that these guys couldn't do a better version of this match because they tried to do this match later, obviously when they weren't, you know, uh, under Vince McMahon's wings and when they weren't, um, you know, maybe, you know, in, in their best shape, this match was damn good. I believe it won the pro wrestling illustrated match of the year. This was, this is quality. I mean, there, you see warrior do things in this match that you, that you only see him maybe do in like the savage match and very other few matches, maybe a couple of the ones with rude that you were mentioning, Andrew, this is just, this is good. I mean, we get all of the goofy, big strongman spots. We get the stare down at the beginning. We get the, the test of strength. We get, you know, the crisscross and the double clothesline. And then, you know, Hogan uh, gets, gets a, you know, looks like he's hurt a little bit and he's outside and they both have the moment where it looks like they're going to do something kind of heelish. And, and Jesse is awesome. Like telling the story all throughout this match. Like I, you know, you, we can all pick out a bunch of Hulk, and Ultimate Warrior matches that aren't that great. And, you know, some people can say they like them or don't like them for some of their beliefs and some of the things that they have said. But on this particular night, just watching this particular match, 
it's it's similar to me like like the Rock Hogan match almost. The crowd is just such a like a great compliment to this match. They make this match not that it wasn't good. It was good. It's good just from like a work rate standpoint. It really is. But the crowd just elevates it so much. I mean, this is awesome. I mean, this is a blast. Even rewatching it now with much more of like a I'm looking for a work rate, you know, with based on what we see week in and week out. This is damn good, Darren. This was the night that made the Warrior, and this was a great night for Hogan. We even heard Jesse kind of at the end mentioning, you know, like when you when you get Jesse to to go like babyface for a second or two, you've really done a good job. Yeah, no, no question about it. Everything you said is completely accurate. The match starts in a good way. The test of strength, feeling each other out, the two shoves, you know, the Greco-Roman thing. I love the spot where he slams the warrior and the warrior pops back up and Hogan's like shell shocked by it. And and the back and forth with the crowd. One of the one of the things I wanted to try to pick up on is whose corner were the majority of the people in? Mm-hmm. And I think it was pretty mixed. It was hard to tell. They both had their moments throughout the match. But when the warrior gets Hogan up for the slam, I think that's the moment where you kind of see the crowd shift. Yep. And, and I feel that that's the moment where Warrior becomes more of the guy that they want to see win the match. Um, and and uh, Jesse's phenomenal during that spot. You know, there's a spot where Hogan, you know, where, where Warrior gets him down and, and Jesse's going, who would have ever thought, you know, like with, with Hogan, like, you know, being overpowered, uh, you know, the stuff with the with the injury, not an injury, not an early injury, can't end like this. It's it's just great commentary. Um, you know, Hogan selling the knee, the back and forth of the match, the false finishers, the false finishes are fantastic. You know, I, I mean the whoever scripted the finish to that match, where you know, you get, you know, Warrior hits his finish, Hogan kicks out, pokes up. You think you're getting the leg. Holy crap, Hogan's actually going to win. Misses it. Warrior hits the splash, and he gets him just before he's able to kick out. I mean, it's it's booked perfectly. You could not have scripted this to come out any better. The 98 match, I mean, you know, for, about forget about being past that prime. WCW didn't know what the hell they were doing. Mm-hmm. That stupid flashback bang thing that blew up in Hogan's face and singed his own eyebrow off. I mean, that's a match that I pretend like never happened. Um, But this is everything you could have hoped for more from two guys who really, you know, couldn't do much in the ring. And, you know, I mean, Warrior goes through a stretch now between this match, the feud with Rude, uh, the match match at WrestleMania 7, the match at SummerSlam 92, he actually has really good matches for a yeah. guy that really works. It's true. And, it's true. Yeah. And, and you do get a bit of a stretch here, but I mean, this is just everything you could have hoped for. And you get the big pop when, when they hit the three and warrior wins it, and you know, warriors won the title. You know, it's, it's one of those moments that will, uh, will live forever. And I remember as a kid jumping up and down, so excited, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, it was just really cool to go back and watch it and dive back in like the six-year-old kid watching it for the first time. 
Darren, I agree with everything you just said, except you left out the guy most responsible for making this match as great as it was. Pat Patterson. You, Pat Patterson. Yep. Yeah. This is his masterstroke. And for a guy that has been around the business for as long as Pat Patterson has in every capacity in which he's been around it, this is his high point. This is someone telling him, okay, we're going to give you a guy that is the most over wrestler in the United States, maybe the world, except he can't work. And we're going to yeah. put him up against this big muscle bound roided up dude with face paint and tassels that has never really had to work a match longer than five minutes with the exception of the Rick Rude storyline. Good luck. <laughs> Pat Patterson, I'm envisioning, channeled Barney Stinson 15 years before How I Met Your Mother was a thing and said, challenge accepted. Hulk Hogan could work. Dirty little secret. Look at his matches in Japan. Nobody is ever going to turn him into Okada or Omega or Tanahashi. His work in Japan, when they are concentrating on in-ring technique, doesn't suck. And, and this, when he wanted to, could work as well. It was just a tremendous job by Pat Patterson to be able to channel every good thing that those two guys brought to the table and hide all their weaknesses. Because if you look really closely mid-match, it sure looks like Warrior's completely blown up. He has some trouble getting Hogan up for the slam. He does hit it, but it's not pretty. This is as good a match as anybody could have expected between these two. Warrior gets the coronation. Of course, it wasn't a whole heck of a lot of a coronation, given everything that happened in the nine months after that. And if you listen to Hogan talk about what happened after the match, he recalls, and again, this is Hogan talking, so consider the source. He recalls 60-some-odd thousand people looking at Hogan leaving the ring instead of the champ with the belts, which I don't think was particularly accurate because there was value in Warrior as the top guy. The problem was, rehashing something we talked about right at the top, there were no top heels for Warrior to work with, and he really suffered as a result of that. This, though, this was the match that made the ultimate Warrior, and it's a match that, for a while afterwards, I'm sure Vince McMahon wished he hadn't booked. This was um, in an era too. I think what, what you know, and just kind of you know thinking about it now, after you both said it, and Darren, you mentioned the the run that Warrior had. This was like, and and Hogan's run of best matches all were in about a three or four year span too, right here. You know, the you had the Andre match, which again was this match is much better work rate than the Andre match by far, but it's a spectacle. And then he had the the Savage match, which was one of Hogan's best matches um, at, at WrestleMania five. So we're in an era where, you know, Hogan just puts up, you know, three pretty solid matches in like a three, four year, which, which again, as Andrew said, it wasn't really what he was asked for. It wasn't what either of these, of these guys were asked for in the WWF. They, they really weren't. They, they're, they were such dominant characters that there were only a few people that you could set up that maybe you could even like legitimately have a back and forth match that was believable with them. And this just, it just hit everything perfect. It was the perfect timing, everything. Um, unfortunately, we you know we we didn't get a, a warrior perfect or a warrior savage feud immediately after that. Maybe he would have had a a little better run. Maybe that helps. Maybe it doesn't. But on um, this night, this was great. 
And Darren, I love hearing back um, when you know when Warrior came back to the WWF, uh, you know WWE in, in 2014, and he, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, Vince was you know talking about how after this they couldn't after the show they couldn't find the Warrior. They were looking all over, and he's like <laughs> hiding in the back room somewhere, and he's like crying. He's like so happy. It was like the greatest moment of his life. He had a very unique relationship with Vince, like almost like a father type figure. And he was like so ecstatic that this company was ready to put the ball behind him and run with it. Um, and, and this was just like this was the the best night. I you know I might I think the Savage Warrior match is is better, and I like it probably a little bit more. But this night was the best night for Warrior, and is like my favorite Warrior night, no doubt about it. Yeah, I agree. Um... The, the one thing the one thing about warrior the character if you think about it and, mm-hmm. you, and you think about how wrestling kind of transformed over time the window for a character like this was not very big yep um, because once you get past 92 93 an ultimate warrior type character doesn't really fit what's going on in professional wrestling. Um, It's a little over the top, a little too much. And we saw that in WWE as they tried to introduce these weird characters moving forward. I mean, it was too much with Hogan even. You know, Hogan was getting booed, you know, at the end of his run. Like the superhero kind of guy was over. And that's why, like, it it was more of just a – Good in-ring worker it, it was a perfect time for Brett to kind of take the mantle You know because we needed someone like that But that's a great point uh, yeah, it just, it wouldn't, He wouldn't have had that kind of longevity I don't think ever really No it's the kind of thing that you're going to get Some monster pops But it's it just I, I don't think you can drag it out And if you remember they, they tried to bring him back In 96 mm-hmm. uh, Which was kind of strange It was out of nowhere he had that match with Triple H at WrestleMania. He has what he with like Lawler, yeah, yeah and like Goldust. But but here's the here's the proof. So Warrior realized at that time that the Warrior, the Ultimate Warrior of 1989 to 1992, is not going to go over in 1996. And he comes out on Monday Night Raw with a hat on, with the hair in a ponytail. Thinking, yeah. okay, this is what wrestling is. And that's just not going to work for that character. And when he went back to WCW, same thing. It just, it, you know, for it, it was perfect. For It was the right person at the right place at the right time. But it was never going to last very long because of the substance of the character. And I wish his title run would have been better. I wish there would have been more heels, you know, could have worked with perfect, you know, Savage. I, I mean, maybe if you work with him sooner, although the, the you know, the sell-off at, at WrestleMania 7 was phenomenal. Was great. But, yeah, but it's just, you do wish you could have gotten more, obviously, out of that title run uh, than you got. I'll expound on Darren's point because you mentioned that the substance of the character wouldn't have worked a couple of years later. There were a lot of substances that that character was built on <laughs> that would not have worked during that time either. Yeah. He would have stuck out like an absolute sore thumb. Now, you could have done certain things with him. I argue you could have built him almost in a way like The Undertaker, 
where you build up a mid-card monster heel type. You go, oh my God, who's going to stop this guy? And then instead of hearing the gong, you hear the dun 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 You do that. Now, there are ways that I think they could have used him. But as a tippy-top guy, the way he was in the early 90s, no, that wouldn't have worked. WCW found that out the hard way when they brought him in. I was intrigued at the time because I was born in 1988. Warriors' initial WWF stuff was completely lost on me. So he comes in, and I'm immediately looking like, who the heck is this guy? (laughs) And before he even says a word, the entire arena is just captivated. If you watch that segment on YouTube, the first six minutes of that segment, right up until Warrior says, welcome to the reappearance, is great stuff. And I will not let anyone tell me otherwise on that. The problem is the segment went on with Warrior talking for another 10 minutes. And it made no sense. Yeah. The key with Warrior at that point was always less is more. And they brought him back in to do the thing with Hogan. Believe what you want from a political standpoint as far as Hogan, quote unquote, getting his win back. I think there was more they could have done with that character. I mean... Goldberg Warrior would have been a spectacle Well that's the one I was just going to mention That's who he reminds me the most of Is Goldberg Because it's it's someone who has a window Where they're a huge flash And I'm not even going to say like a flash in the pan Because when we talk about like all time You know like Ultimate Warrior His run and his popularity for a, a couple year Spurt is is up there with you know some of the all time greats. He he feels a lot like Goldberg, right? Limited in the ring, the crowd loves him, but he can't really go long and he, and like not really like a promo guy. Goldberg's best promos have been actually since he's come back. So that that was a kind. Of, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's kind of who I was thinking, Andrew. Yep, you can think Goldberg. You can think to a certain extent Lesnar, although Lesnar was a freak of nature who picked pro wrestling up about as quick as anybody not named Kurt Angle. Um, but it's a similar time span, the whole being really over for a really short period of time and then leaving. Those are the comparisons that you draw to. And I think there would have been money in him in the mid nineties as a spectacle guy. They were setting up and warrior Jake Roberts feud when warrior got popped for whatever he got popped for in 92, you could have done warrior undertaker. That would have done pretty good business. There were ways they could have used them. That unfortunately, history did not allow us to see. For this moment in time, though, and this seems like a fitting way in which to to end things, this was Warrior's Night. This was his coronation. And to anybody that wants to bash the Ultimate Warrior or people who like the Ultimate Warrior saying, he couldn't work, watch this match. Watch the match with Savage. Watch his matches with Rick Rude, especially at SummerSlam for the Intercontinental title. I think it was 89. Yep. The guy could work. It took a certain set of instances and the stars aligning for him to work, but you could get an incredibly memorable match out of him in the right setting. And with that look at that time period, that was enough for Vince to pull the trigger. Darren, uh, any final thoughts before we get out of here? No, uh, you know, uh, just one of my favorite WrestleManias as a Warrior fan. You know, one thing I noticed, I, I, I never really realized it before. The uh, the hotel rooms in the, in the Sky Dome back then, they're, they're blacked out. They, I never realized it. Wow. If you go back and watch, 
there is shades and curtains pulled down over the hotel windows in the back of the Sky Dome. So I guess those people can't see what's happening. Which is, no no which freebies. Is no freebies. Yeah, no freebies. No freebies. You know, forget the 200 and change you're paying for the room. No freebies, you know. So I did notice that one thing. But, yeah, this – it is – the one thing I note is you go from the big spectacle here to, you know, WrestleMania 7 not being able to sell out the stadium to then going back to the big, the big venue in 8. And then they don't really do a big venue in terms of size again for a while. Yeah, for a long um, time. For a long time. And, you know, it, it's it's kind of odd, and I don't know exactly what the what the reasoning was, why they couldn't sell those tickets. But, like, WrestleMania 9 was in a makeshift, you know, arena, outdoor arena in Vegas. 10 was at the Garden, 20,000 people. So this, this and WrestleMania 8 are the last big stadium things. But the, I'll tell you what, when you if you go back and you watch the first 10 Manias, there is something to be said how 3, 6, and 8, just seem to stand out more just because of the size of the event. Absolutely. And it feels like a bigger a bigger moment. It feels larger in terms of importance, and it just feels like a bigger spectacle because of that. Yeah, Fellas, I, I yeah go ahead, Andrew. Go ahead. And just really quick before we go, can we please do WrestleMania 8 next? That's yes. the one I voted yep. for in the poll, and it's one of my favorites. <laughs> yes, we're going to do, I think, uh, our next two, uh, 8, and then we'll get to 14. I think that's cool. the other one that you wanted to do. So let's plan on those two. We'll talk next week. Yeah, we could do an entire show just on the match that didn't happen at WrestleMania 8. Good call, Darren. And you know what Hogan would have been in that match? You know what he would have been? He would have been a big guy who could move. <laughs> we'll, we'll definitely have to get in one day too. We'll, we'll hit back, I'm sure, to uh, Royal Rumble '92 because that'll be a good one for all the the Heenan and Flair stuff York, too. Baby. So awesome. Let's plan on uh, hooking up next week, and we will talk WrestleMania Eight. I'll let all the folks know early, so if they want to rewatch uh, and get all set up, thank you very much. Uh, give me your your cheap plugs real quick before I let you go, Darren, and then Andrew. Sure, Twitter, uh, at the track 7 we do horse racing, we do wrestling. You know, when we have sports coming on, we do fantasy sports as well. We have a lot of fun, and uh, I, I always am happy to interact with anybody and have a little back and forth, too. So I never ignore tweets if I could avoid it. So uh, check me out there, at the track 7 At Andrew Champagne on Twitter. Uh, also, the Champagne and JD uh, video podcast. Looking really YouTube. good, man. Thank you very much. I'm actually just getting set to record uh, this week's edition right now. We've got Megan Devine coming on. We're going to talk a little bit of Australia racing. We're in the process of starting to roll out a new feature uh, with guests in there. So don't be surprised if you hear from us on that. But uh, (laughs) at any rate, if you've had the chance to tune in so far and you like what you hear, thank you very much. Hopefully there's more coming. But uh, in the meantime, always happy to come here on Thursday nights in this crazy world of ours. It's really nice to have something to look forward to. So, Gino, I can't speak for Darren, and I'm not sure he would want me too but thank you very much this has been fun it really has been so uh enjoy the rest of your evening fellas have a great weekend and i look forward to talking to you uh next week where we talk some wrestlemania 8 take it easy that's uh 
Aaron, uh, Aaron, I was combining Andrew and Darren. You see what I did there? That's what happens at the end of two hours and seven minutes. It beats Darren <laughs> Drew with a stick. Aaron, 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 Andrew Champagne, Darren Zocali. We'll talk WrestleMania 8 with them next week. Don't go anywhere, folks. We're going to close out. That's what G said in just a moment. A big thank you to Andrew. A big thank you to Darren. We were having a lot of fun with these recaps. So if you're following along and watching with us and you want to do uh, some homework and keep up um, over the next couple weeks, we're going to be recapping WrestleMania 8 from 1992. And then with uh, Jason Beam and Danny Kovalov, we're going to recap uh, SummerSlam from that, that very same year. So actually, that's kind of cool. I'll make sure we do those uh, back-to-back because there'll probably be a lot of similarities in those two shows. So thanks to tuning in again, folks. If you can, give us a, a like, a subscribe, a rating, and review. If you're on YouTube, iTunes, SoundCloud, uh, Google Podcasts, tune in anywhere that you get your podcast. Joey Cleveland, let's close him out with the music, my friend. <laughs> 